Hello, and welcome to the Assembly Line, an NES homebrew podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kevin from Khan Games. And I'm Bo from Soul Goose Productions. And we're here once again to talk about homebrews. There's been some uh, chatter lately, Bo, from uh, new people sort of coming into the fold. Yeah, yeah, that's been one of the exciting things to see is that kind of within the last year, a lot of new people have kind of entered the community. And it's a lot of people who are, are doing things, they're talking about things, and they're just genuinely interested in what's going on. But they're talking about things that we've sort of discussed, um, to not, not necessarily on this podcast, but, you know, we as the homebrew scene have discussed in, in pretty good length um, in the past. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the homebrew scene's going for been going for over 20 years now, so we've kind of covered a lot of topics, and a lot of the things that have been raised over the last few months have been issues that have been talked about over the years, uh, kind of at times to death, and at other times not so much, but uh, yeah, there's, you know, as they say, nothing new under the sun uh, in, in some ways. That could be true, but, you know, when we started you know, thinking about some of this stuff, it was very easy to sort of say, oh, we already came up with an answer for that question, but you almost have to go back and reevaluate things now. Oh, I would, I would more than agree as, as, as helpful as it is for kind of new people to understand that these things have been discussed. I think it's even more helpful for, uh, those of us that have already been around the block. Wow. That's, that's never good. Um, <laughs> those of us that have been around to kind of realize that, Maybe the conversations themselves have changed. Yeah. As the community has changed. Can we give any concrete examples of specific topics? Well, I've I've seen some some talk lately on the on the Twitter and on the forums about uh the use of donors in manufacturing homebrew games. Uh, which means okay. what, Kevin? Uh well, I mean, it means repurposing old games uh and basically putting a new game on that cartridge. Kind of like organs, yeah. Donors. Uh, yeah. You know, you put it on your license. You're taking a cartridge out of circulation um, for good and repurposing it for some new project. Yeah, you're taking awesome games like, what, Mega Man 3 and 5 <laughs> and Little Samson, things like that? Well, probably not. I, I would say more toward um, probably taking a game like... Just say it. Silent Service? Yes! Like Silent Service. The or, garbage of the yeah. NES library. Play action football. One one of those, you know, games that everyone had that there's John Elway's junk. Uh, yes, lots of junk. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, and these games, when I got into things in 2013, I could go into like the worst resale shops in town and pick them up for a quarter apiece. So I had boxes full of ice hockey and golf <laughs> and whatever else. Cause I knew that the boards could be used for simple homebrews relatively easily. And how is that converse? How's the conversation about donors changed over the years? Do you think, I mean, let's go way back to like early two thousand, early to mid two thousands, uh, kind of in the middle period of 2010 okay. to 2015. And then now, well, I mean, in the early, early sort of NES homebrew scene, donors were really the only way that you could put your project onto a real cartridge to play on an actual, you know, real hardware. You know, back before new parts were manufactured by Retro USB and Infinite NES Lives, like you had to repurpose these cartridges. Um, and back when, you know, when the original Garage Cart came out, you know, didn't they use donors to uh, to put that out? Oh, yeah, those were all made with uh, SMB uh, Duck Hunt donor. Or maybe they were mm -hmm. just SMB. 
donors. I forget. But then you sort of went into the second wave of uh, NES homebrew releases when when those new parts were coming out. You know, you could use brand new PCB boards and brand new shells and sort of present your fancy game on a colored cartridge uh, to the world. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was exciting times. You didn't have to uh, destroy games anymore. And and a lot of people, a lot of people were against that. You know, they, they didn't want even though there's billions of these cartridges laying around, they didn't want any taken out of circulation. Yeah, which is honestly a little ridiculous. But you know, whatever. But yeah, until INL actually made the flash boards where you could, you know, easily reprogram a board, even with retro USB boards, you still had to learn how to solder, you had to order chips from, you know, used chips from some Chinese supplier. And it wasn't easy. So if you're going to order chips and go to all that trouble and still have to do the soldering, you might as well just go pay 25 cents for, you know, a shell and a PCB that you can use. That's way cheaper than buying a brand new PCB and shell. Mm -hmm. Um, Like the economics of it really supported. I mean, Al Bailey did Sudoku on donors and a lot of other people use donors up until, you know, the the whole flashboard thing is kind of what changed it. So is that is that still the case right now? Are people still primarily using all new parts for their releases? Well, yeah, there was that big shift to using all new parts. And, you know, whether it's because you didn't want to destroy donors or whether you just wanted the ease of it all. But there's also kind of that backlash of somebody makes a game from scratch they want to do everything themselves that includes finding the shells uh, if they're you know used in donors but also the soldering process and the desoldering of a board and all that like that's that's like full maker mentality of like you're going to do everything yourself and i find it really hard to be negative towards that if somebody wants to take 100 copies out of silent of silent service out of circulation <laughs> I go for it. Like you are doing something. You're actually You're almost adding doing value. us a favor. <laughs> yeah. Nobody's going to want these games. You go to antique stores and you see like 50 copies of Pac-Man for the 2600 and you go, nobody's ever going to love these carts. Nobody's ever going to even bother to fire them up to see if they work. And at least with a homebrew, you're giving something new life. So I, I think we're starting to see kind of that do-it-yourself mentality, like give value to that whole process. Uh, whereas for a number of years, it was like, you know, you should go support the people making new parts and, you know, we should, you know, not be taking copies of Gemfire out of circulation for that MMC5 and whatever else. But I, th- I think now we've come to a nice happy medium of both coexisting. But that's, yeah. maybe that's just me. No, I mean, I agree with you. There's something sort of romantic about, you know, getting as DIY as you can get, like all the way down to the soldering of the chips. I mean, you're, you're something creating that, something. And that's something that neither you or I have done. So it still has that sort of romanticism. Uh, we yeah. don't realize how much work goes into that. <laughs> yeah, I tried to solder last week. Uh, it didn't go well. <laughs> well, and just the economics of it. Like, you know, it's nice to go support uh, people making new parts like INL or Brian or whoever. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can pay 25 cents to 50 cents for your parts, like that supports you making more games in many cases. So it's, yep. you know, I think every situation is unique. You got to kind of support people as they do things. But yeah, I don't know. End silent service. <laughs> What's another uh, topic that we can reevaluate here? Well, how about uh, gamers versus collectors? Okay. Okay. What's the history on that one? When homebrews started coming out, there was sort of a divide amongst people. You know, there were people buying it because they wanted to actually sit down and play the game. And there were those that were buying it just so they could add another number to their collection total. 
So it was this sort of people were buying them and that was great, but buying them just to put it on a shelf and, you know, games are being resold years later that are still sealed. It's like, why did you even buy? Why did you even buy it in the first place? (laughs) Well, in the beginning, there was the view that homebrews are being made by people today, which is Mm -hmm. true. Uh, and therefore, because of that, they will never be collectible. It's people artificially creating things that are limited. Uh, things like Pink Lady Frogger, you know, Kevin made 10. He could just make more tomorrow, so they'll never be collectible. And same with Sudoku. Al Bailey had some plans of like, well, I'm going to cease this run and we'll start a new one with new puzzles. And that'll make this or that more collectible or whatnot. People are like, no, this, this crap's never going to be collectible. This is junk. And over the years, we kind of saw that that wasn't true. Uh, 2013, 2012 through like 2015, things became so expensive collecting-wise that new people almost couldn't join the community in terms of older releases. Yeah, it got ridiculous. I mean, anyone, you know, there were people putting out limited runs of just whatever they could get their hands on, and copies were just selling like hotcakes for astronomical prices. It was it was a great time to be to, to be a developer. Um, and <laughs> in some instances, it was a great time to be a collector. But it was it was very expensive to get into for sure. Yeah, and you know people talk about bubbles and all this. You know the bubbles burst. But in terms of homebrews, it, it genuinely did. Yes, they things got so expensive they could not be sustained at that exactly. level, and there just weren't that many people interested. Yeah, and and things have sort of evened out now. I think for the most part, you know, stuff's going for sale for for very I don't want to say affordable, but very much more affordable prices. <laughs> uh, so it's uh it's it's definitely easier now than ever to sort of get invested and in, and and play a lot of these games that came out in the past. Yeah, nobody wants to hear like, oh, the bubbles burst. Things are things are dropping sell 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 but like at the same time things were so artificially increased by a few people buying and selling things at astronomical prices that i think what we see now is much more realistic in terms of you know if you if you want to play you got to pay which you know that that's kind of the rule the pay to play thing but Mm -hmm. you're actually paying a decent amount that isn't isn't ridiculous and we've seen um, a sort of new avenue emerge um, in this sort of pay-to-play whole idea. People lately have started releasing ROMs, you know, for for a couple bucks or ten bucks or whatever online. So, what do you think about that? Ooh, that ROM releases almost more than anything have had a storied past. Mm-hmm. Um, back in the late '90s, early 2000s, even up till Joe released uh, Memblers released Garage Cart in '05, games were made and. This goes with emulators too, like because initially with emulators, uh, a guy or two tried to sell emulators, and then everybody else was like, "No, emulators should be free. Let's make them free." And with that was ROMs. ROMs should also be free. Nobody should ever charge for a ROM. It should just be, you know, this late '90s. Everything's public domain. The internet's the wild frontier, and, <laughs> and all that. Like, I mean, it's a mentality, and you can see it in the history uh, if you go through the old threads and stuff. Everything is free. That's why we have all the tools we have. Is right. FCUX and uh, YYCHR. Nobody's making these things to make money. They're making them because they can, and they're giving them to the community. Mm-hmm. And so games should also be that way up until kind of the cart releases that started. And after that point, then, you know, if you're going to put something on a cart, people stopped releasing the ROMs. 
because they wanted to protect the cart. Yeah, and I think that there was some sort of resistance to that idea, but I think when people started caring about, you know, these games that people were putting out, they quickly came to the developer's defense, like, hey, you know, we should be paying these people money. They they put hours and hours into creating this, like, we need to show them that we, we care and we support them. So that um, that was sort of a seismic shift, but I think almost things are almost starting to go the other way now, to some degree. What we're seeing is a lot of people don't, you know, for a number of years, it was, you know, all original hardware and you, you get the NES and then you get the ABS or the, uh, or you get the analog and yeah, analog you know, everything's pure. But a lot of people today, I think, are playing on devices that run with ROMs, uh, you know, hacked PSPs or exactly. Wii's or whatever other Android things are out there. And they don't, they don't care for the cart. Uh, they, they want to see the ROM. Well, yeah, I mean, they're bringing their their hacked PSPs on the go, you know, to play at, on their lunch break at work. Like, their gaming time might not necessarily be, like, two hours in front of their TV at home, you know. Yeah. It's, they, you have to sort of start catering to how people play games. Well, that's been a big shift. I mean, because a lot, of, I know I was very anti-ROM release, and I think you were too. Absolutely. Uh, but I'm starting to reevaluate that. Things like, I mean, Micromages was the most obvious recent example of like 1,400 people were like, we just want the ROM. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I'll get, I've always, over the years, I've gotten, you know, five or 10 people per project that are like, hey, give me the ROM, you fool. And I'm like, that's, that's not very nice. <laughs> that's not Don't the way to go about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not giving you anything. But. I'm starting to wonder if there is a service to to do to perform for these people that just want to play ROMs and still want to support the developer. I think that's that's a key part of this is that they don't want you to just give them the ROM. They they want to pay five or ten bucks and support you and what you're doing, but also actually be able to play it in the way they prefer. Now, what do people like you or I do, um, you know, when we are primarily making our games on like GT-ROM where that isn't necessarily supported in a wide variety of emulators, like some of the features we're using, like when we go to release ROMs of our games, like how do we, how do we do that and, and where the, the games will actually play the way they're meant to be played? Uh, you know, that's oddly enough been a question i've been debating lately with with spookatron if i released it as a rom you wouldn't be able to play it Mm -hmm. nobody would because uh, gt rom does certain things that can't be that are not currently emulated in emulators which you know brad smith has done a lot of work to kind of rectify but uh, i think the easiest way would be at least in my case would be to convert things to the mmc1 or some Mm -hmm. sort of mapper that had additional features yeah, and you know, GT ROM has been great because it gets us away from the old clunky battery backed hold reset while you power off, so you don't corrupt all your RAM. Like it's gotten us away from that. Flash saving is amazing, mm-hmm. but because it's not always emulated or the fixed bank isn't emulated or things like that, like actually going back to the MMC one solves most of those issues, and it's pretty easy. That's true. That's a good point. I ask that for purely selfish reasons that we'll get into later in the episode. <laughs> well, that is my purely selfish answer as I debate the, these questions. Uh, I wasn't expecting you to ask that. Huh, good for you. Kudos, sir. <laughs> Gotta keep you on your toes, Bo. Yeah, you know, I'm always thinking. So what else we got here? Would you say that uh, homebrews are as collectible as they once were? Um. Yeah, I think something something is always collectible if somebody wants to collect it. 
And the more people that want to collect it, the more desirable it becomes, uh, you know, collectible it becomes. Do you think that the the vast success of, of, of a game like Micromages, do you think that the crowd that found that game is going to, is any of that crowd going to sort of seep into the backlog of uh, homebrews that we've already released in the past? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you look at it, somebody likes Mega Man and Mario and whatnot, and then they start looking for other things they might like. And so as new people join the community, I can only imagine that they're going to start looking at past things going, man, I got to have that. Um, (laughs) I don't know if we'll ever see the prices we did of 2015. Well, I can almost guarantee we'll see the prices at some point. But, you know, that could be 20 or 30 or 40 years out. Yeah. As things become more sparse. But... As a whole, like, yeah, we've seen new people getting into collecting. And it's an uphill battle. Even when I started in 2013, when there were only probably 50 games out, it was still an uphill battle because that was 50 games I had to go find. And they were, Mm -hmm. the prices were just off the charts, you know, 100 bucks a pop at least. So, yeah, and that's shifted over the years. It went from being those of us that got into it in 2012, 2013. It was a huge financial uphill battle. And now today, it's more of an uphill battle in terms of quantity. Yeah, uh-huh. just finding some of these games at this point is is getting hard, and it's going to only get harder. Oh, f- even f- yeah, that's the biggest thing. If you want to try to find them all, good luck, because <laughs> finding them is the hardest part. You got to track down owners. You got to track down, you know, what the value is. Everything. You got to make sure it's not a fake, which becomes increasingly hard some things weren't even numbered you got to know exactly what you're buying you got to do your research and knowing the prices is almost the hardest thing now because all these price guides that came out you know when they were at the height of you know the peak of their prices they're not selling for those prices anymore so how do you even know what to offer oh yeah some stuff is but some stuff is not and a lot of the old timers want those high prices Mm -hmm. that you know, are now three or four years old. And it's like, dude, you're not going to get that. Um, <laughs> but they also have no incentive to get rid of it otherwise. Like, right. like eh, I'll hang on to this for 50 years. I don't care. Yep. It's like, well, you're going to have to pay to pry it out of their cold, dead hands then. <laughs> hopefully before they're cold and dead. Well, hopefully it gets trickier <laughs> when they're gone. But anyways, public development. Have you noticed a shift with that over the years? Uh, Well, yeah, it seemed like... When the advent of the forums in regards to what we do with with the uh, the homebrew community, when when people were first starting to get into things, it seemed like every game sort of had its own thread, and every thread was sort of getting a lot of attention. And the developers were reaching out for to the community for ideas, like what do you want to see, what do you not want to see, um, and it seemed like a lot of games were sort of shaped this way. Battle Kit is the prime example of that. Hundreds of threads, uh, tons of community involvement, constant excitement. Like every new development was a huge deal and everybody was excited. Mm-hmm. And then what happened after that? That type of thing, I should say. Well, and I don't necessarily know the reasoning, but it seemed like a lot of developers became more reclusive with uh, their ideas and their sort of development. They were working on things behind the scenes. A lot of times you didn't even know it until the game was out and you were like, oh, you were working on that? I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how, how a lot of us uh, do things. I think I think a lot of that shift has been in regards to who's in the community. Yeah. People like myself we are reclusive and don't 
don't really want to talk about stuff till it's done. Mm-hmm. We also saw a lot of people who had shown up over the years and talked about things and gotten really, you know, a lot of hype behind it and then disappeared and never finished things. Yeah, like uh, when UDC decided he was going to port the Oregon Trail and he did the yeah. title screen and then disappeared. <laughs> yeah, I mean, stuff like that. Like, you didn't want to be that guy, so uh-huh. you kept it to yourself and you, you know, put your head down and, and worked and eventually maybe you have something to show yeah and i can sort of see both sides of it like when you are the reclusive developer there's almost less pressure because no one is expecting you know you oh you announced this when is it coming out like why aren't you done oh that Um, question of when is it coming out you just posted this when's it coming out it just starts to weigh on your shoulders like god like you just don't have the freedom to take your time and like focus on it because you're just so overwhelmed with people's demands. But at the same time, like when people see that you're working on something, they have the time to sort of get excited and hyped on it and, and they're going to buy it the second it comes out. So there's, there's good and bad. And I think that um, these days it seems with the sort of the interest in what we're doing as the homebrew community, like the interest I think is sort of off the charts right now. So I think it is almost better these days to sort of tease what you're doing as you're doing it so people have something to look forward to. Because it seems like, you know, when you post animated GIFs on Twitter or whatever, they, they sort of circulate um, around and, and people start to find in you. Yeah, as much as I want to, it's just, it's still like cringeworthy for me if I post anything. It's like, oh, this isn't going to be done tomorrow. <laughs> Bunny Boy's famous comment of however much time you think it, it'll take, uh, times it by 10. Yep. Yeah. But he's very adamant about not giving release dates. <laughs> oh, yes, that. Uh, which I will agree is a very good idea. Yep. <laughs> no holiday games. Well, what else we got? Well, there's always been the question in the homebrew community about limiting releases. Oh, okay. You know, a lot of people look at it as it's part of that collectability thing of artificially restricting the number of copies that are released in order to jack prices up or make your sales or do whatever. How has that shifted over the years, do you think? Or give me some examples of the beginning. I feel that my answers might be biased since... Really? uh, Well, yeah, you know what I'm saying. (laughs) When people, like, let's just start at the beginning with Garage Cart. Um, Okay. Memblers decided to release it. He was using donors, so obviously his resources were sort of limited in, you know, the cartridges he wanted to use as donors and the amount of time and effort he wanted to put into sort of making this release. So how many did he do on his run? Like 30-something? No, it was like 24. Okay, 24 garage carts were released. You know, they went into the wild. Then sort of fast forward, Al Bailey's doing Sudoku. He releases a gold version of Sudoku, a silver version of Sudoku, and then like a general release. So this sort of... And then release version two and release version three. Yeah, I I don't want to say like a precedent was set, but like they sort of did things in a way that developers said, okay, well, there must be some sort of demand for like a limited version. And I don't think... Yeah, Civic had limited stuff right off the bat. Yeah, he was, he always did, I think, 33 of everything, his Battle Kid releases... Um, and then when I did, you know, my Frogger game, I did 10 pink lady versions. Like we just, we wanted to have, we wanted to create something fun and sort of 
I don't want to say collectible, but just something special for the people that helped beta test it or helped, you know, source parts for it. Just something to say thank you. You know, here's something like a special version of my game just for you. And I think prices just sort of started inflating to a point where like developers that were coming into it were like, oh, like I can release a limited version of my game and and get prices like this. That's that's pretty awesome. So I think the reasoning for creating limited versions of games maybe changed from doing something special for people who were helping out to oh, I can make astronomical amounts of money. So once that started sort of being the case, I like that was not sustainable at all because as you as we said in the past, like the prices just got too high for anyone to sort of get into it. So luckily that's died down a little bit. And I think that consumers as a whole, like the people buying this stuff have backed way off too, because they see that, you know, if if they're buying it for resell purpose, like you're not going to get your money back. At, at those prices anyway well when you did pink lady frogger you weren't limiting it for tens of thousands of people who might possibly bid on it you made it for nintendo age mm-hmm. who which at that time was maybe a few thousand members and maybe 50 to 100 that were actually interested in homebrew things yeah that com- you made it for a specific community and we don't see that now. Now we look at it and go, wow, a thousand bucks for that game. That that's, that's insane. Like, but how do I get it? Um, yeah. Good luck. That's very, <laughs> yeah. I've been trying for years. I know. Poor uh, Bo. <laughs> it's the last K hand game I need. Uh, con One day. Games, I like to go One day. But like you weren't making them to sell them. You were making them for real people who you knew, you know, uh, Ross won one from just having the best score. And, mm-hmm. James got one from are you helping you with your sprite zero hits and whatnot? Brian's mm-hmm. got one for the same reason. Like they went to real people involved with the project. And even before that, things like Garage Cart, Joe never intended to limit that. He just kind of, you know, got busy with other things and it wasn't a priority. And before he knew it, you know, a few years had gone by and it was like, oh, I probably shouldn't make any more. Like that's kind of that's its own thing now. Like you don't realize how fast time goes for people that are buying these things when you're, you know, you intend to do one thing and time just flies. Mm-hmm. I've seen the laminate in his basement that he he bought this entire like roll of laminate, uh, UV coated to do the labels in, and there's still ninety. 90- eight percent of it sitting there uh, <laughs> you know waiting to be used he's got stacks of hundreds of donors like on the other hand he can't really justifiably do more of the exact same thing without you know probably you know bothering some people that <laughs> paid eighteen hundred dollars for it yeah um, i mean once they became collectible um just because of the scarcity of them and sort of the legendary status of the cartridges themselves like yeah, if I were spending that kind of money on something that was that special and then he turned around and started making them again with without any changes, yeah, I'd, I'd probably be upset about it too. Yeah, you certainly wouldn't be too happy. Uh, <laughs> there's one fellow who's done that um, over the years and he doesn't redo his limited stuff, but he redoes any of his regular releases. You can still buy for like 20 bucks and it's like, this is awesome. I can still pay reasonable, actually dirt cheap prices that involve no cost for labor or programming, you know, and have it on my shelf. And it's pretty much the same thing unless you've taken notes and know exactly when and where it came from like I do. Is that an NES release? Yeah. Robot Urchin with uh, Dragon Leap and Dragon Feet oh, okay. and T-Gun and all that. Although he won't do Dragon Feet again because he doesn't care for the game, which I completely understand. You hit a certain point in your life and you're like, nope. 
nobody should ever see this. Um, I know how he feels. Yeah, but yes, yeah, sneak and peek. Um, <laughs> but you can still get Dragon Leap for like twenty bucks if you just ask him online. Uh, he does runs periodically, which for the people that were buying it to collect it and flip it and sell it, it's like, oh, you got burned, fool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for those of us that just want to play, we're like, thank you. But yeah, that whole, you know, people always harp. Not always. Some people have really harped on the whole idea of like limiting releases and just they're super negative on it. But if you're going to make something and like really take the time to do it right, it's so much easier to just do a set amount than an endless forever run that somebody may call you up someday and you have to say, yeah, I'll dig everything out of the closet and make you one more. Yeah, I mean, plus there's there's a big investment for runs of games like yeah, you buy 300 pieces 300 copies and you sell out and you know the market's not really there anymore but there's 10 more people that want to buy it after you're sold out do you go out and buy 300 more pieces for 300 more copies no like it's just not cost effective so you're not going to please everyone but you have to make financial decisions that are best for your situation let me tell you how many copies or boxes of swords and runes i have (laughs) <laughs> we could start a small bonfire um no you, it's, you don't have a guest room let's put it that way <laughs> no it's gone down over the years i'm still shocked people buy that after all these years but it's a uh, time and come and gone but mm-hmm. yeah you end up with a ton of stuff that you have to store you have to keep track of and then you have to build whenever anybody wants one like it's a it's a hassle yeah, and you can't send those boxes back to the to the manufacturer and say, "Oh, I don't need these. Refund me." Like your money's spent. Like you're stuck with them. If they don't sell, you're just losing. You know, you're out that money. Yeah, and the only way you get them at a decent price is large quantities. Mm-hmm. So you kind of hedge your bets on how many might I sell? Maybe someday. That's the that's eternal it. struggle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and if you're using donors, it's it's multiplied by like 20 as prices have gone up for even the cheap crappy games that you would normally use. Like if you're having to pay 4 to $10 for a donor, you're not going to be making any more copies. No. Uh, you sell your 50, you move on, and that's it. You don't care anymore. You've, you've got your game out. Done. Awesome. You've accomplished <laughs> your dreams. So what about that eternal question of, what is a homebrew? How has that shifted over the years? Um, well, I mean, I I think that there are new tools now to like create homebrews to maybe make things more accessible for other people, but I don't know that I would change what a homebrew, you know, what I've thought a homebrew has been all these years. Oh man, that's changed so much over the years. Well, Every... school me, Bo. Over the years, we've had to redefine what a homebrew is in light of what a homebrew is not. So when elaborate hacks like Pyronaut came out, we had to say, well, even though it's been, you know, 95% recoded, it's still not a homebrew because it's borrowing base code from something else. Or when, you know, a translation comes out like, oh, look, it's the same thing. And you're like, no, it's not. Here's why it's different. Or when Kevin Hanley ports, what, 50 games to the NES from other consoles, like, is that a homebrew? And you have to go, well, yeah, it kind of is. Or no, it's kind of not. Like you have to make those decisions and it's been an evolving definition, but it's really one that maybe we want to address on a future episode. Yeah, I think that's probably best. Yeah, there's been some some key changes in the past year that I think will warrant a further discussion that, you know, <laughs> we've, we've gone long enough on our recurring topics in the community discussion so far. So do we want to talk a- about a game now? Oh, we don't talk about games on here. We just talk about our wild theories, <laughs> don't we? 
<laughs> well, you know, every once in a while we try to sneak a game in. And uh, what game are we sneaking in today? Well, it's it's been asked for. This was actually the winner of our patron voting conversation about what game would you like to see featured next, which at the time it was tied between this and Lizard. And I broke the tie to say Lizard because I really had wanted to play it and I'd already played this game. Uh, but we are going to talk about The Legends of Aulia yes. by Gradual Games. Yes. So uh, it's been a long time coming, I think. We've wanted to get uh, Derek back on here to actually get into the to the meat of uh, one of his creations. Yeah, we featured his music, I think, twice. We interviewed him at GGVM. And it's time to actually look at one of his games. And he's done uh, Nomalos, uh, Storming the Castle, Legends Valley. It was a second game. And he's currently working on a game called Trophy with mm-hmm. no lengthy subtitle for whatever reason. <laughs> Maybe he needs to uh, come on and talk about how he has reevaluated how he does his uh, game titles. <laughs> well, give us about uh, 20 to 30 minutes and we'll uh, we'll get to that. Okay, okay. <laughs> so if you you get two sentences, Kevin Hanley, to describe the type of game The Legends of Alia is. So I'd say the gameplay is sort of a three-quarter perspective, action-adventure, fantasy-based with owls and real-time combat with a cool narrative. Tell me about the narrative, Bo. Once upon a time <laughs> in a world far beyond imagination. Six great owls brought forth a land called Aulia. Together they reigned in peace, wisdom, and prosperity for 80,000 years. (laughs) However, their pride in the beautiful lands and skies of Aulia led them to neglect the vast, immeasurable seas. And from there we have a story about Merman, (laughs) king of the Merman, Merman. Damn it. Uh, <laughs> You're very passionate about the fact that he is a man. Well, uh, that's a Zoolander reference, but... Oh, okay. Merman oft rose to the surface to survey the land of Aulia. His desire for sunlight, green forest, and most of all, the power of flight, because who wouldn't want that, grew until he knew the oceans were not enough for him. He endeavored to capture the six great horned owls one by one in order to sap the power of flight. Merman, not man, then <laughs> empowered his minions to float towards the lands of Aulia to claim it for his own. And thus begins the quest of, oh, I'm going to butcher this name like no tomorrow. <laughs> A- Adlaniel? Adlanel? And it's like flannel, but like, I think it's like Danielle, but like <laughs> Adlaniel. I... You're trying to say the, the main character's name? Yeah, just help me here. Adlaniel. That's, I mean, that, I... I think yeah, like you're right Flanial. on. Uh, Atlanial? Atlanial. Atlanial. Uh, Atlanial is the heroine. Nope, that's a drug. <laughs> nope, she's still the heroine. That's actually how you say it. Um, and she is accompanied on her quest by Tito, or Tito, but I'm going to say Tito, uh, her owl companion. Also uh, my favorite Jackson from the Jackson 5. I knew that was his name. Lisa and I were talking about that earlier. Um <laughs> I still don't understand how little Michael was such a big deal. But um, heard ABC one two three in the grocery store. I'm like adults listen to this? Get real. <laughs> um, but yeah, Tito, your owl, your buddy. Um, and what do you do with your owl, Kevin? So many things, Bo. 
uh, <laughs> just oh, that sounded a little dirtier than I probably wanted it to. But um, so when well, you he st- does have a pecker. When you start the game, <laughs> you can use him to attack creatures for you, or you can use him to fetch items for you. This small owl that you love, you whip at various enemies as if he was a you know baseball. <laughs> Um, yeah, so um, it's probably a, your best bet as far as like ranged combat, because with your sword, your sword is very, very short. So you kind of have to get right on the enemies to use it. And that usually winds up with you getting hit. So using the owl for sort of ranged combat is very nice. And then a lot of times um, you have to use your owl to retrieve items that sort of spawn or like after you kill an enemy that's kind of out of reach, you have to use the fetch to sort of get the get uh, retrieve the item. Yeah, so the owl mechanic is kind of the central mechanic to this game. It's like Zelda, but you have this pet owl um, that will do things. Yep. He will hurdle at enemies. He will fetch, like Kevin said. You can also do things like drop bombs, lanterns. Uh, he will carry the heroin places. He will... What else will Tito do? Uh, he can turn into a shield and surround the heroin to oh, sort yeah. of uh, kill all the enemies that come around you. And then um, the final sort of most powerful thing you can do with it is uh, it's like a homing, yes, a homing device. Yes, it'll kill yeah, I know. whatever Very enemy is, is closest to you. Yeah, so it's it's like Zelda, but it differs in a, a key aspect because it's it's level-based. Mm-hmm. You, you start in the town, you walk around, you talk to people, then you leave the town, you go find some sort of great owl who tells you various things about, you know, he gives your quest um and then you got to go find the first dungeon so you it's the game alternates between overworld and dungeon each time there's npcs scattered throughout the overworlds but then dungeons are you know dungeons dungeons are also single screen like zelda one and the overworlds are like full-on eight-way scrolling which is fairly impressive i will say yeah it is and it takes a little bit of you know exploring um each each dungeon you actually have to accumulate a certain amount of gold um in order to sort of unlock it so you have to in the overworld right yes in the overworld um so you have to do a lot of exploring in the overworld to collect gold from chests and also from killing enemies uh in order to unlock the dungeon um before you can go into it and and try to save whichever uh great owl is being trapped therein yeah, so there's there's these great owls, you gotta save them all, and that's why you're going through these dungeons. When you finish the dungeon, that great owl will take you to the new place, and that's why you can't re-traverse the old world. Right. Uh, it does not have a connected overworld. Yeah, um, there's no backtracking or anything like that. Nope. It's always collect the gold to unlock whatever dungeon you're at to save whatever owl is trapped in it. So what items will the player come across in her quest to uh, defeat Merman? Uh, so like I mentioned, you come across gold, uh, you come across bombs, and you come across hearts. Um, And this game is unique, uh, at least I haven't seen any game like this, to where you have, like Zelda, three hearts um, that you start out with, but you can collect more hearts to keep in your inventory if your health is full, to where if you get hit a couple times and you're down to one heart, you can open your inventory screen and actually use the hearts that you have in your inventory to replenish your life. Which is crazy. I mean, like, you're sitting there at some boss and you're like i'm down to one heart you hit pause to like to take a refresher and you're like what do i do now i have no clue and you're like 
why does it say health on this screen? Why does it have a, why does it say seven next to it? And you go to click it and you're like, oh man, I can, re- I can replenish my hearts. Yes. I'll take it. That is, uh, that is a very sort of nice, uh, feature that he put in there. Uh, it makes the game a lot more, uh, makes it easier. <laughs> uh, it makes it playable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like I ended, this was one of the, I think this was the last game I said I was going to test, uh, until Micromages came along, but even as a like having played it in the testing phase and I've played through it many a time, I was still sitting there this last time. I was like, what do I do? And I was like, why does it say health? <laughs> and sure <laughs> enough, it was like, Oh, there's the light bulb moment. Yeah. You're not, you're not used to seeing that. Like in Zelda, they always had, you know, you capture the fairy, you put it in a bottle and you die and it automatically refills this, this involves some strategy on your part and some thinking ahead and knowing what the game actually entails to use wisely it's almost uh, along the same lines as you know the potions in the original zelda um to where you physically have yeah. to pause the game use the potion um and then return to action very true but the fact that you can you can collect seven of each item you can have seven bombs seven hearts going in there. lanterns you know i since you well I only remember using lanterns in a single area, so I'd never really had to keep track of them because I never ever ran out. Well, it's another item is what I was getting. Okay. I just, it, I honestly did not know that you can only have seven lanterns. (laughs) Oh, you can only have seven of anything. Yeah. Uh, Which as a programmer is always like, there were some very conscious RAM decisions being made (laughs) and I can appreciate that. Um, Absolutely. Oh yeah. So enemies, tell me about the enemies in this game um they are would you like would you see would you dislike well i mean what immediately comes to mind is how few of them there are like there's usually two enemies per screen occasionally three or four but very very rarely and none of them sort of have any elaborate movement they they are all pretty um i don't want to say boring because they're not boring it's just nothing nothing jumped out at me as being like overly elaborate um as far as yeah like, i mean you know they they come towards you they might throw something at you they you've probably seen them before in some other game somewhere though you may not be able to place exactly where they were all well done i really like the design of them um the design yes. like the octopus uh the crab the angler fish um oh you're talking bosses no those aren't bosses oh okay oh go ahead sorry the angler fish yeah, I really like the anglerfish because he uses um, he uses that enemy type for a couple early puzzles um, to where they illuminate an area in front of them. Um, oh, yeah. that's an anglerfish. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, I know what you're talking about I'm, now. I'm reading the manual where it actually gives these uh, enemies names. Um, uh, just the, the fish with the light. That's what I call it. <laughs> um, but no, they actually, the design of these enemies is very, very nice. Um, Lori did an amazing job with the art. We haven't even mentioned her yet, right? Yeah, sadly. Gradual Games is not just Derek, who does the programming and design and music, but uh, the other half of Gradual Games is Lori, who does the art. That's his wife. Mm-hmm. And together they've just made this amazing team over the years as each of their games shows progression on for both of them in terms of what they're doing and it's just it's been wonderful to see yeah so looking through the list of all the enemies it seems like all of them are sort of water based um you know crabs puffer fish eel jellyfish that kind of thing um but because our evil villain's a merman that could be that's a very astute uh observation there Bo. 
Well, um, you know, but they're eight all, years in college. They're all very colorful, um, and they all have uh, very distinct uh, shapes. They're very easily identifiable. So um, they did a, a very good job with the enemies. One thing that I've I noticed about Alia, and I noticed it even more so after having played his new game uh, Trophy, is Derek took a ton of time with the boss fights. Like they're elaborate, they're complicated, and they are interesting as can be. Oh, absolutely! Right from the start, I think the first boss is sort of a an elaborate octopus. Um, yes, the octopus who like bobs back and forth on the screen and throws his you know spear like tentacle at you, and you have to dodge but also hit him. Like my, my favorite, uh, my favorite boss in this game is the crab boss, um, and I don't give oh, I, yeah. I, I don't want to give away why that is. But if you haven't played uh, this game yet, please pick it up and at least get to the third dungeon so you could uh, fight the crab boss and figure out what to do because it's such a cool idea. I really really like it. That is probably the best boss in the game, I, I think. I would agree with you on that. Yeah, the yeah. the final boss is very memorable. Um, but yeah, that crab boss is probably the one that I'm going to remember uh, the longest in, in my brain. No, that's the type of thing that you look at and go, maybe I could just borrow this idea too. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe nobody will notice. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was... Uh, uh, too bad it's not a licensed game where you can do that freely. <laughs> Tell me about the puzzles in the game. Um, so the puzzles in the game, they are, what do they consist of? A lot of pillars that you have to move in a, in a specific sequential order. And every time you sort of reveal a puzzle and solve a puzzle in a dungeon, uh, typically you're rewarded with a key and you have to get, uh, two or three or sometimes four keys in a dungeon to unlock, uh, sort of the final boss room. So, uh, you're always on the hunt for these keys. So you have the pillars, there are like owl statues that you have to change colors of to sort of reveal a specific color pattern. Um, What else? Uh, There is a switch puzzle where you have to step on switches in a certain order. And then also one puzzle that uses some bombs and exploding Mm. things uh, at the same time, which we'll get to in a bit. Yes. So the game also features very large worlds, like in terms of homebrews, like the scrolling overworlds, although you can't retraverse them and there's no towns or whatnot, there's limited NPCs, they're still very large. You don't normally see see things that big do you think that is primarily because the the main heroine herself is sort of extra large not in weight but in like the size (laughs) of the sprite itself like she's she's a large sprite um so you almost have to compound the world to make it that large that is one of the things about this game uh is that they used very large sprites she is what 16 by 32 uh, that which would, is I yeah mean, that'd be my guess final fantasy characters are 16 by 24 and like zelda or link is 16 by 16 mm-hmm. so picture two links stacked on top of each other like that's pretty large in terms of like the dungeons and stuff are still 16 by 16 yeah uh, so when you're walking, you end up getting hit by things that you probably shouldn't or wouldn't think you would. Mm-hmm. You learn pretty quick. But uh, yeah, the world is reflective of the houses are huge. The other NPCs are huge. Most of the enemies are larger. Um, if, if Link saw that 
that sized of octopus coming at him. Like, no, he, he'd be done. He's like, Zelda can help herself. The uh, hero of death. Um, yeah. Now, one thing that bothered me with, um, and maybe this isn't in direct relation to the art size, but the, the trees are all very, very tall. Um, and I constantly want to walk behind the top of them, but the way he did the collision, you can't do that. Like you, you can't walk through any part of the tree, even if it looks like it should be, um, from that angle behind the tree itself. Yeah. You know, the NES, because it didn't have layers as you intimately know. Um, I think that's why that is. Mm -hmm. Like there's just no, unless you're really going to build the whole game around the fact that you can pass behind objects. Ah, yeah. I, I think that's I'm why that, the decision right. was made. No, you're not nitpicking. Cause if you go to play Crystalis and you do walk behind the objects and you see half of your character over the object before it flips to go behind it, like you're like, that looks like crap. <laughs> so I completely understand why he didn't try to do some sort of layering. Yeah. That because opens it's a pain up a lot of, uh, yeah. Yeah, unless you're really going to build for it, it is just a bother. <laughs> Are there any um, sort of qualms that you had with uh, the game? The Legends of Alias, the biggest thing that it suffers from is what I like to call the comparison game, mm -hmm. uh, where you're like, oh, this game's a lot like Zelda, and here's how it's not. Yep. Or it's, in this case, a lot, a lot like Star Tropics, but here's how it's definitely not. Yeah, you it's it's sort of a slippery slope um because are you are you complaining because the game is not what you wanted it to be or are you complaining because of what the game is? Like it's it's so hard to give to talk poorly of the game because it's not what he wanted to make. Like if if he didn't want to make the game a certain way, like who are you to complain about it, you know? Well, the biggest issue with that is if he did want it to be a certain way. You know, if he was, if, if I want to make a game that's just like legacy of the wizard, and then I ignore most of what the legacy of the wizard is about, uh, then, you know, I've kind of failed in that, but to, to just take different parts and be inspired by things mm -hmm. and try to make your own game, then you really can't play the comparison game, but you constantly want to, because it's so close yes. to so many things. Yeah. Um, and I do love this game a lot. Um, the biggest problem I have with it is the only real exploration I feel like I did in the game is at the very beginning where you have to find that first tree to initiate the first cutscene with the, the owl. From then on, you're just looking around for gold to unlock the next dungeon. And then when you beat that dungeon, the owl carries you to the next world. Like there's no, there's no real exploration of the overworld itself. Well, you don't see a lot of games set in the three quarters perspective with a lot of weapons and puzzles and stuff that are level based. I can think of uh, Grandmaster for the Famicom was one, and uh, Dai Katana for the Game Boy Color, and that's kind of it. Mm -hmm. Like usually, you have an overworld that you retraverse, so you're expecting something else than what you get. And yeah, the exploration is down because of that. Your biggest sort of requirement is to find gold in a yeah. new area, which is also kind of a complaint about the game. And I remember the first time I played the game as a tester. I never realized that there were gold requirements for the dungeons because they were much lower back then. Uh, and then at some point, I think a few of us brought that up. And so the uh, requirement was raised 
And this this last time I played through it, it was like, man, that is too high. Like I, I don't I don't want to have to keep finding gold mm-hmm. all the time. Um, is there like a story driven reason why you have to find gold to unlock the dungeon? It just doesn't it doesn't make sense to me in my brain. Yeah, it's not something you you've seen before. You know, if if a game. Well, we we know certain conventions. We expect to you know gain experience, or we expect you know this type of puzzle or whatnot. Which most of the puzzles were very intuitive. Mm-hmm. The gold requirement to enter a dungeon was kind of like, huh? Yeah. But, okay. The only thing I can recommend is if you haven't played the game and you really want to, on level two, uh, the ice world, the top right screen, or I think when you start, if you just go straight up, just farm a bunch of gold, and then you never have to worry about it again. Mm you not once will have to go find gold if you just keep killing things and picking up stuff. And yeah, it's just a little unbalanced would be my only thing. Because like normally, like with RPGs, with experience, you know, if I fought every enemy in a dungeon, I should be able to just move to the next dungeon without any issues. Like I should only really get in trouble if I'm running and not fighting things. Mm -hmm. But that's really it. Yeah, Uh, they're minor things. uh, There's one other thing. Uh Uh-oh. The bomb puzzle. Ah, the bomb puzzle. <laughs> you know the bomb puzzle. I do. Yes. So one of the biggest strengths of the Legends of Valley is that the puzzles are intuitive. You look at it and go, you can either figure out what it wants, or you can look at it and go, I've seen this somewhere else before. I definitely know what it wants. And you will find one room in World 2, the dungeon, where there's two items. You just learned how to use bombs, and there's two things on the screen that you can explode. And you explode one, nothing happens. You explode the other, nothing happens. So you go back into the room. But it gives you like a weird sound effect that you never hear anywhere else. Like yes. Basically saying well, you did something incorrect, I guess. I guess I had the volume too low. Oh, okay. But, uh, and so you're sitting there looking at it, and you're like, well, I know I need to explode them both at the same time. That's got to be the only way. And I probably spent two hours wandering the rest of the dungeon trying to find bombing every wall and doing whatever else and finally came back to this and was like, how in the world do you do this? And I got some help and he added in some NPC text, but uh, you have to explode them both at the same time and you have to do that by how, Kevin? Uh, You have to throw the owl into the wall and then run the opposite direction, and then the owl turns around and chases you down and will then place the bomb where you're standing when he reaches you. Something like that. I somehow did it completely different today, but okay. Well, that's uh, that's how I did it, and that's, I think, how the manual sort of alludes to it. Um, but I agree. When you, when you put something... When you put a mechanic in a game that you use in a single place um, for something required to get through the dungeon like it just seemed really obtuse um and didn't really make a lot of sense because i didn't even find anyone in the game that said anything about that i I happen to track down some sort of reference to it in the manual oh there's a wandering npc in the ice world but uh yeah even still it's like yeah it should it should either be a mechanic that's reused more or dropped altogether Mm -hmm. but you know i think at that point it was already in there and you gotta have something to to get that last key but you cannot progress without it and it is like the if you don't use save states if you're not playing the rom uh, which is freely available online uh it you you'll constantly have to be going to find more bombs and doing all sorts of I did things. like that when you pick up a bomb, it gives you three, I think, each time you oh, pick does one. It? Yeah, it, it it seems like the bombs replenish very, very quickly. But but what's what's such a shame is like that mechanic, when you finally figure out how to do it, it's so cool. Like I wish it would have been reused more. 
Yeah, I kind of wonder how else it could have been used uh, throughout the game. Yeah, I mean, even if he used it in the same way again in a different location, like he he did reuse puzzle types, so I don't know why he didn't. Yeah, yeah, and because the game is level based, like each level gives you a new ability, and so that level tends to kind of harp on that ability, mm-hmm. which Zelda did too with the dungeons. But you don't often reuse those same things in other places. I don't think you ever use lanterns in the the actual game, do you? Other than those, there's uh, a couple sort caves. of optional caves. Yeah, in the mountain. Um, yeah, those yeah, are the but only you don't place. have to go in them. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one other thing that, and it's minor, that bothered me. Um, when you die and get a game over um, and continue, it resets what abilities are mapped to your buttons. So you constantly have to go back and reset your abilities. And if you if you keep dying at a certain spot over and over, it just becomes a pain in the butt to like go in, reset your abilities, get back to that room. Um, it just became a nuisance to me. Ah, you're a grumpy old man. Absolutely. No, I played with save states, so <laughs> <laughs> I just reloaded whenever I died. Yeah, jerk. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm terrible. <laughs> so yeah, like we said, Lori did a wonderful job with the art. Uh, the world is expressive. It's highly animated. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a wide variety of graphical types, and you could really see her skill grow beyond what she did in Anomalos. Like, it's just... I mean, three-quarters perspective is kind of hard to begin with, but she really just kind of nailed it, I think. Yeah, and there's some really good sort of cutscene graphics uh, when you finish the game. Some highlights of uh, some battles that you uh, went through. So yeah, that art is is fantastic. Like overall, the game looks very good. Um, And the characters themselves, like some of the NPCs, like uh, some of the pirates that you come across, like they have some some pretty distinct personalities. Oh, and with the pirates in the in the sort of pirate world, you encounter some mini games. So the game also has some, you know, games within a game within a game mm-hmm. to kind of grind out some gold and things like that if you don't have enough for the end boss. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, fun little carnival type things. I, I liked I, I thought that was a nice little touch. It, it, uh, yeah, it was a welcome change for sure. Uh, tell me about the music, Music Master Kevin. O- overall, I think the music in the game is very good. There are sort of scenes that have just sort of a a melody and bass with no sort of percussion going on Um, but then you have more sort of renaissance type baroque music or whatever Um, but i i didn't feel that there was a lot of variety um it seemed like he reused a lot of the music in uh, the dungeons oh i don't know um I guess for me, the usual test, because I don't have the musical skills ye all do, Mm -hmm. uh, I never got tired of anything. I could always keep listening to it. If I had it paused and sitting next to me while I, you know, typed some notes or whatever, it didn't, it didn't grate on me. Yeah. And that was, that's awesome to me. Like I I can't stand a game that has bad music. So (laughs) this had, this had pretty good, good, uh, solid sounds no i will i will agree with that i guess the game itself just felt sort of uh epic to me so i i just i guess wanted more um but i can't know zelda only had one song right well has uh well one for the dungeon one for the overworld and then one one for the the last screen (laughs) yeah and that was like it so well i mean that's a that's a good template uh, yeah okay i'll give i'll give that to you all right. Well, it just I think seemed like Der- biggest... Derek, being a musician, I, I figured he would have. Maybe he just didn't have the space. Um, but I figured. Yeah, but you can see him grow if you look at Nomalos. That's all like recomposing. Yes, composing of baroque songs. This right. is actually original original music. music. Yes, and someday soon we will see that trophy like 
is on steroids. Awesome. Well, we've already seen it. We've played a couple of his songs on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Like his musical skills in terms of NES composing have have just gone off the charts. I haven't played Trophy yet, so I I do look forward to uh, experiencing what music's in there because you've definitely t- uh, hyped it up. Well, he is one developer, and, and Lori is an artist. She's you know one artist who you can clearly see that they they're they're not striving. I mean, they are striving for for, for perfection with each thing they do but that level that the standard and the bar gets raised with each game and Mm -hmm. they just do something that is so much better and i don't even know if they're aware like of the leaps and bounds that they're going through with with each incarnation of their work i mean the music and art and gameplay everything it's just so evolutionary you don't normally see that people hide their you know unfinished projects and they come out with these great things or whatever but these guys just lay it all on the table and uh they do the best they can and they just move on and learn from it and that's wonderful to see it seems like they have a very high success rate of coming up with an idea and tackling it and actually doing it very well um you don't hear about them having a lot of uh, unfinished projects uh i can tell you they don't uh, as i've done the interviews but um <laughs> for the for the book and whatnot but they, if you look at each of their games in the context of when it was released in the life of the community, you know, when Nomalos was released, full scrolling yeah. platformer awesomeness, nobody else had done it. Right. Uh, Alia, three-quarter perspective, Zelda-like, with, you know, a bunch of levels and whatnot, nobody else had done it. So it's kind of hard when we go back and evaluate, uh, you know, stuff that was huge four or five years ago in light of what's coming out now. But I, I really think Alia stands the, the test of time. Yeah. The graphics, the animation, um, the music, it, it still feels fresh playing it today. Cause I, I beat it when it first came out, but playing through it again, there were a lot of uh, things that I did not remember. So it, it was nice uh, being able to experience it all again. You got a favorite level or location? Uh, I mean, it's, it's hard to, um, not say well i think uh when you take the submarine um Ooh. to the final boss area uh that yeah. what what transpires during that journey uh i feel is very very unique uh and exciting so that was a uh, nice to witness i love underwater sections yeah. so i completely agree. did a hell of a job uh, with the graphics there too i like the bubbles sort of floating by <laughs> Oh, the bubbles are great. I, I liked the ice world myself. I'm all generally partial to ice worlds. Mm-hmm. I, something about them. And the music in that one I remember was very good. Other than that one puzzle in the dungeon, like, I love the ice world. Which puzzle? Mm, the bomb one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that one. Did you have a favorite boss, or do you agree that it's the, the crab? Uh, the crab is so genius. Uh, <laughs> that one... That one is great just because you use a mechanic that is so underutilized for combat. Mm-hmm. And that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> that one's good. I, I kind of like the first boss a lot as well, just because you're like, wow, man, okay, we're, we're really going to play a full epic now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that really sort of sets the tone for, oh, okay, so this is the level this is going to be at. It really uh, sort of sets the stage. Yeah, probably the hardest one was the uh, eel or the kraken cracking on the uh, <laughs> submarine that one because you're already kind of like down in your hearts and you're like man I, I just gotta make it through this mm-hmm. um, and again i cheated with save states but hey whatever <laughs> there's a trick to that boss to where you can do it without getting touched really oh yeah you just gotta be very patient mm-hmm. uh, like many games 
anyways, uh, which was, that was one of the things in Lizard too, like with the bosses, it was all about patience and not, you know, blowing your load. Um, yeah, you can, you can probably take that out. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> so would you say the game is fun? Like what's the fun factor? What's the replayability? Like where would you rate those things? I find it to be rather fun. You know, it, it's like Zelda. But you got to get over those preconceptions. I always want to say, well, it's kind of like Zelda, but really it's kind of like Aulia. Mm-hmm. And if you're willing to play a game that, you know, progresses linearly, then it, it's a solid entry. Like, that's not normally the type of game I like. I don't like platformers. I don't like level-based things. I like to be able to take my dear sweet time and just get through things eventually. But yeah, no, it was good. The only... That just gets in the way when it comes to replayability because there's nowhere else that you haven't been. So I've sat on it now for three years before replaying it Mm -hmm. and still a solid game. It'll probably be a few years before I replay it again, though. Yeah, it's very fun. It's replayable, like you said, once every few years. Um, I think that playing through the game, if there weren't anything to like stop you dead in your tracks, like that, that gold grind that if you're not prepared for it can sneak up and prevent you from progressing. Um, if the game just played through straight, I think that it would be absolutely fantastic. But if you don't have the gold and you have to backtrack through the overworld and you know, you're just like, okay, you go to talk to try to get in the dungeon it doesn't let you, okay, it respawns all the enemies, let me just go kill them and try to get more chests and try to get more gold. If you are far below the threshold you need to progress, cool. it does take a little you bit of time. Well start the game. Yeah, it's tough, man. But like, other than that small sort of annoyance, like I, th- I feel that the game is very, very fun. And it's something you can beat in one sitting. Like It doesn't take that long. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not overly long. Uh, but it still gives yeah, a couple you, hours, maybe. Still gives you a lot of action for your money, and it's always hard with games that are pretty much bug-free with solid mechanics because you really can't complain about any of the normal stuff that you you complain about. Like the game is functional and it works and it plays well, so then you just end up focusing on design things, which a lot of games don't get to that that point because they're broken inherently from you know programming issues. Right. When did this game originally come out? So Alia came out in eh, roughly April of 2016, and it had been announced uh, a couple years prior. You know, I think they'd worked on it for about a year, year and a half before they ever told anybody that they were actually working on it. And then he was like, I still remember the day when he announced that it was coming out. It was a snow day. So I, I was teaching at the time and Uh, substitute teaching not real teaching and we had the day off so we walked to the grocery store got some coffee and i checked my phone i'm like what is this madness that derek is posting (laughs) this is so exciting and like i was just i was shocked i was like man like this is it we're gonna we're doing the best that has been done in the community yes Um, it's ushering in a new era of homebrew greatness and they were done because they don't tell people that they're working on things for like two years it was done like a year or two later and it was like it's already out man they usually take forever (laughs) but it came out and it was released as a limited edition which came with a yellow shell uh cardboard box you know styrofoam sleeve manual 24 page color manual you know don't skip on the manual at all is it a different kind of box than the regular edition well we'll get to that graphically we'll get to that in a sec and okay sorry it came with a little owl and derek hand numbered them all they were one to fifty 
and he's normally not like a big le person limited edition person but uh Lori's mom had throat cancer and had you know gone through all the medical processes and had some bills so they auctioned off the 50 copies as a way to raise money to, to pay her medical bills which was awesome you know you look at the limited editions that you know kevin or i've done you're like oh that's a filthy cash grab and you're like hey well not really but we'll get into that and this one, it was like, this, this is actually going to help somebody. And so people came out and they bid anywhere from like 92 bucks, I think was the lowest, up to, all the way up to 550 And I think it really made a difference in some people's lives because of that. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, stories like that just, it makes you think like what we're doing here, you know, there's a bigger picture going on. <laughs> yeah. And he normally just, you know, sells first come, first serve basis, but you know, it was it was a nice thing to see happen. And so those 50 copies went off and then it was offered for sale on Infinite NES Lives. And because you have to order, not have to, but generally if you want a decent deal, you have to order boxes in quantity. The leftover cardboard boxes went out with the, the first run of um, the CIBs. And so I think he said for the first year, anybody that ordered one ended up with a cardboard box and then they sold out. And they went to Bitboxes after that, which is what you can currently buy. It's for sale on uh, Infinite NES Lives uh, from Paul for, I think, 35 bucks for a cart only. Well, a cart manual or like 47 for a cart manual and a Bitbox with, uh, you know, artwork and all that. And how else, Kevin? How else can somebody, if somebody wanted to play this game today, how could they go do that immediately? Can't they just go to gradualgames.com and download it? Yeah. So Derek, he built his wonderful uh, Gradual Games virtual machine where you could play it on PC using Java. And then he just released the ROM after that. So if you don't want to go through the complicated process of Java, uh, you can just go download the ROM from his website. Uh, it's free. And I think it's got some tweaks and improvements over the cart version. Or maybe that's just with Nomalos and the uh, retro USB initial version. Mm. But um yeah, you can you can go play today if you like it. Uh, you know, send them a few bucks or go buy a cart copy, and uh, if not, then you know whatever. So should we talk to Derek? Should we bring him on? Uh, yeah, because Aulia actually has a very deep and complex story stretching all the way back to when Derek was like ten. So yeah, let's let's bring him on for sure. Hey, Derek, how are you? Hey, Bo, I'm doing good. How are you? Oh, just wonderful. Um, <laughs> so. You have a very distinct name for your company, Gradual Games. Uh, tell me about that. Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think when I was a teenager and was uh, first uh, learning game development and, and uh, programming, I, at the time, was really interested in learning how to become more more motivated because I had a lot of difficulties, you know, staying, um, staying on task with, with the games I was working on back then. And one thing, uh, one tidbit my dad shared with me was a quote by a scientist named uh, Pavlov, who said uh, to his uh, students to school themselves to severe gradualness. And that stuck with me for a long time. And I thought to myself, <clears throat> if I were to name myself somewhat after that quote, it would set up a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, whereby <laughs> I would, uh, you know, move slowly and, and I would just affirm the fact that I was moving slowly and not feel bad about it. Because I think uh, when I was a teenager, interacting with uh, some programmers in the, uh, in the QBasic RPG scene approximately 20 years ago, they made me feel as though I had to have 
um, an enormous number of things uh, done and quickly. And I think it sort of discouraged me. And so I decided to do sort of call myself the opposite of that so that I would affirm and feel happy about moving really slowly. And that's why I called myself gradual gains. Did you say severe gradualness? Uh, yes. <laughs> okay, just just wanted to make sure there. Who is Gradual Games? Was it just you? Uh, you got musicians, artists. Uh... Uh, Gradual Games is is me and my wife Lori. Okay. If you're curious, the exact quote by Pavlov is uh, "Gradualness, gradualness, and gradualness. From the very beginning of your work, school yourself to severe gradualness in the accumulation of knowledge." Hmm. You said your dad sent you that. Uh, yeah, I can't remember the, the context or, or, or what, but uh, he told me about that, and then I printed it out and put it on my wall as a teenager. It didn't have much of, much of an effect until I was older, but it stuck with me anyway. Your dad wouldn't happen to be a professor, would he, Derek? He, 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 is, a, he is, in fact, a professor, yes. <laughs> does he know that he inspired your company name with that quote? I think he does. I'm pretty sure I've mentioned that to him. <laughs> You seem to have a lot of consistency to your programming routine, isn't that right? I recall reading that you set aside like a specific evening every week uh, to work on your games with some regularity. Yes, um, I've been working consistently about three evenings a week, uh, Saturdays, Sundays, and Wednesdays, since the middle of 2008 or so. Wow, that is a decade. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a decade of consistency. And the the I always I always make exceptions for when uh, family's visiting or there's some kind of holiday or something like that. Well, that's good. Time, <laughs> most of the time, I'm able to carve out um, at least say a half hour or an hour on each of those uh, evenings, if not longer. Nice. Uh, you said how long each evening? Well, you, you know, the bare minimum, a half an hour if lots of other things are going on, but uh, usually an hour or two, three evenings a week. And so that's often more. But but most of the time it's around that that amount. So we're talking what is that like three hours a week two three times. to six? We're talking that's like sixteen hundred hours. That's like sixty five days of solid programming over the last <laughs> decade. Dad, huh. you'll have to pardon my math. I don't think that quite worked out the way I wanted it to. And, and to be honest, I don't know. Like, I don't think that that would reflect the average because they're, you know, interspersed amongst that are quite a few times where I might work for, you know, a full work day on the weekends. Yeah, you've uh, you've done some large projects and you just keep at them until they're finished, which is real. It's inspiring to see for sure. <laughs> So what got you started with NES development? Uh, kind of how did you even learn that homebrewing was a thing and where'd you begin? So that, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. I think that um, as, a, as a teenager, I, I had gotten into DOS programming uh, through QBasic and had been introduced fairly early on that uh, assembly language was something you could use to augment your programs and make them faster and so on. And from there, I encountered people in the QBasic scene who used a lot of assembly language. And, and then I taught myself assembly language and did some on DOS. And so that gave me some assembly background back then. Um, and then I kind of had this big hiatus through college. And then in my first job, um, I, I had a coworker who happened to be also interested in game development and was actually aiming very squarely at, at entering the game development uh, field professionally. 
Um, neither of us were in the field at the time. It was a different type of job, but he wanted to be in that field. But uh, in, in talking to him a lot about game development, uh, I revealed that I was really interested in in um, somehow revisiting my nostalgia for for programming in QBasic and DOS, and that I just liked old school programming. And and uh, this coworker of mine uh, named Bill uh, said. Derek likes old stuff, and he was kind of teasing me about it. Um, and I was like, "Yes, I do like old stuff." And he, and he said, "Well, if you're really into that kind of thing, then you should check out uh, NES Dev." And he sent me what then was, I think, Parodius uh, NES Dev com or whatever. And I think that that piqued my interest at the time because uh, I thought, "Well, I I have a little bit of background in, in DOS assembly. Maybe I could pick up 6502 assembly." And I uh, joined the forum and started asking questions. And uh, before too long, uh, Roth of Sly Dogs Studios actually sent me the NES 101 tutorial by Michael Martin. And that kind of, uh, and that combined with seeing um, Sivak making Battle Kid uh, using the Power Pack and so on at the time, um, all kind of got me started. Huh. Now, That's correct awesome. me if I'm wrong, but you have your original NES still, right? I do. And you st- you still use it regularly for for stuff? Yep, I do. And it's um it's it's actually has been um RGB modded. Um nice. but it's, and I I had been using using its new S video port for a while on my on my Trinitron, but it kind of something I don't know if it was the Trinitron itself or the or the RGB board on the NES kind of crapped out and it it like starts shorting out after a while, but thankfully the modder routed through the original composite so I can still use it as it was. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, that would suck if that went out. Yeah. What were some uh, kind of influential or favorite games from the NES library that have sort of impacted your, you know, homebrewing, your programming and whatnot? Well, um, I would say that the my, my top favorite games from the NES library, because I didn't have very many from when I was uh, a kid, uh, were uh, Kirby's Adventure and Mega Man 5 in particular. Ooh, good choices, sir. Very good choices. So the first game you released in the homebrew scene uh, was Nomalos Storm in the Castle, a scrolling platformer reminiscent of Mario. The courage to release a game with scrolling uh, as a first project is really admirable. Um, did you have any reservations going into the project uh, of that magnitude from the start, or did you just figure it would work out? That's a great question um, because I mean scope is, is a very important thing to consider for an, for a aspiring game develop game developer of course I think that I the scrolling wasn't so much um, uh, it didn't it didn't seem that intimidating to me at the time because I had some of the stuff that I did in QBasic as a teenager I had I had made a simple scrolling engine so I thought what could go wrong with doing scroll, scrolling on the NES? <laughs> um, <laughs> so many so, things. So, so there was, there was, the, so the scrolling part didn't figure it into it that much at the time. However, um, I had, by the time I started Anomalous, been working as a professional developer for long enough to realize that if one uh, chooses too many features for a project, it can become an, a, a horrific mess very, very, very quickly. And so yes. when I thought about what I wanted to put in Anomalous, I thought, I should make a game with as few features as I can possibly stand. Like, I'm not going to come up with oodles and oodles of items and and techniques and moves. I'm just going to have jumping and hitting things, and that's going to be it. And he's going to have maybe maybe three weapons max, 
And I, I think when I first started, I thought I wouldn't even have three. I'd just have one. And uh, and the very first scrolling engine that I came up with, Nomalous, only went in one direction, um, like Super Mario Brothers 1, which actually would you know simplify certain things. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, I didn't realize this at the time, but if I had left it as single scrolling, I could have done you know destructible environments pretty easily, like Mario. Did. Oh, um, yeah. But nice. at some point, I, I'm not sure why, I just decided I wanted to be able to backtrack and then rewrote the engine to do backtracking that's funny you try to make it as simple as possible yet you throw scrolling in as the you know one (laughs) thing that's going to stay yeah although interestingly i uh having experienced now uh, having written nomalous um engine nomalous's engine alia's engine and now trophy's engine that just a a a scrolling engine that that is constrained to either vertical or horizontal is not that bad um, but when you get into eight-way scrolling or an engine that has both horizontal and vertical scrolling, that's when you get into the real headaches. And in, yeah. in fact, <laughs> contrasting my experiences with the two, I was able to rewrite Nomalus's horizontal scrolling engine, I think, in a day. But Aulia's took me like three months, and so did Turfies. Oh, wow. <laughs> so like when you get in, when you get into having to fiddle with attributes and in, in moving in multiple directions, that's when you get into a lot of headaches. But if you if you have a if you can go in a constrained direction, you don't have to worry about um, attribute glitches because you have the mirroring is sort of designed for scrolling in one direction, and and furthermore you can bake the attributes right into the map format, so you don't have to split them apart with a lot of bit fiddling. You can just blast them right there. It's a heck of a lot easier to think about. Oh yeah. So speaking of Alia, um, kind of tell us where this game idea came from. Give us some history. So there's there's a couple of germinal ideas that contributed to what Aulia became, and one of them was the the name, uh, the Legends of Aulia, was a name that I came up with a group of friends in in fifth grade. We had like this uh, some kind of you know extracurricular enrichment type of class together, and I can't remember what the assignment was from the teacher, but we were supposed to invent something, I guess, and I think we decided to invent a, a video game, not actually program it, but just like write down the idea and describe it and stuff. And I actually can't remember at this point whether it was me or a friend that came up with the name The Legends of Aulia. But ah, they'll as, never know. Take the credit. <laughs> but as most of them have you know, moved on and probably have you know don't care anymore, I you know I, <laughs> I kept the name. And and I, I guess I it, it, I felt like I owned it after a while because I did try to make The Legends of Aulia in QBasic as a teenager and those friends with whom I had come up with the idea in fifth grade all knew about it and were involved to varying degrees. Um, but I was the one, you know, do, attempting to do all this stuff with the Legends of Valley. So I sort of, if I wasn't the original person that came up with the title, I certainly felt like I, I owned it at that point. <laughs> um, oh, and then in terms of the gameplay mechanic um, and the main character, uh, I would credit uh, Lori, uh, my wife, the artist, uh, with that. Um, I think she, it was her idea to have a female elf be the main character. And I think she may have suggested the idea of her being a falconer, but with owls. And and then I think from there, that sort of suggested for me, um, you know, various things the owl could do. So this initial idea has really evolved over time as, you know, this childhood kind of vision to something very concrete once you started working on it with Lori? Yeah, like like as, as a kid, I think I, I didn't really have a story or vision myself I sort of 
I, I, I did attempt to, to bring my friends in uh, early in, in, in middle school. I, and uh, my one friend, Justin, was attempting to write a story for it. And the main character was going to be called Cassius. And then my friend Dan uh, wanted to contribute, and he came up with a secondary character named Dudleyus, and he drew a couple of enemies for the game. Um, and those contributions are still represented in a copy of the Cubasic version of, of Alia that I still have. Can you say the heroine's name for us, please? It's Atlaniel. It's an elvish name. Atlaniel, okay. I forget what we we determined, Kevin. I don't think we determined that. <laughs> well, I don't think so either. <laughs> we tried though. Um, so when you set out to make it, and even through the development of it, like how did you have any sort of influences from licensed games, or did you strictly stick to like original ideas that you had from either childhood or or during the process? Um, I think I think uh, early on we were trying to decide whether to make the sprites a chibi style like Zelda or whether it would be a taller style like say Crystalis or Star Tropics. And I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of, of Zelda, Crystalis and Star Tropics. And so uh, I think I think it came down to that Lori really wanted to draw a slightly more detailed main character than just a tiny little chibi one. Those are so huge went... sprites. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. So at that point, uh, Star Tropics kind of became the model because it had a, a uh, taller sprite. And I was a big fan of the game, um, so just kind of for that reason, Star Tropics became uh, a game that we sourced for for reference for um, for graphics and and some aspects of gameplay. You really don't hear it. people point to Star Tropics as an influence in their stuff, so that that's great to see. Yeah, it's such a good game. Yeah, it's, I love that game. <laughs> so you mentioned that uh, your day job is a programmer. Um, and for those of us who can't program more than assembly or, or very little other than assembly, it's hard to really fathom uh, the difference between programming in higher languages at work and then like coming home to program, you know, NES in a lower level language. Like, can you sort of expound on the challenges or differences that are like inherent in this? Do you have like to toggle a switch in your brain to go back and forth? Um, yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, I, I mean, I'd say that um, my first programming language was QBasic with a tutor when I was about 13, and there's probably more in common with something like um, QBasic and modern languages than there is with assembly language, um, just because you are taught to think in terms of higher level things first. And so I guess once I learned assembly language, a lot of the ways in which I was already thinking about programming, I found the things that that match those ideas in assembly language. And so it, you know, it started to feel pretty natural. It's just sort of whenever one writes assembly language coming from a higher level language background, it's, it feels like you're sort of decomposing things that you were used to into smaller pieces. So mm. like an if statement, for example, Instead of just saying, if this, then do this block of code, you're saying, load this value, compare it to another value, and then branch if there's uh, some condition met. So it's like breaking. So something that was once once felt like one step um, is now three smaller steps. So it's <laughs> sort of like you're compiling, I guess. <laughs> oh, that just blows brain. my mind. So... Your wife, uh, who happens to be your artist, she's rather talented uh, at, at the old pixel art. How did you finagle that working relationship? Uh, <laughs> please, I need some secrets here. 
Uh, so that's that's a great question. I think um, very early on when we were first uh, going to see each other in the summer of 2006, she had mentioned that one of the things she'd always wanted to do is uh, animate uh, for a video game, which probably in, in some part of my brain sort of sealed the deal right then and there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Put a ring on it. <laughs> um, but uh, fast forwarding a couple of years to when we would actually start working on things together. At the, before we got into doing the any doing the NES, I I I had been exploring doing the Legends Valia with her uh, on on a variety of different platforms. And at one point, we were trying to put together a game engine in uh, on a platform called Free Basic, which was which is a modern version of QBasic that compiles on modern systems. Um, and so I was trying to sort of resuscitate my memory of QBasic and apply <laughs> it to FreeBasic, and at the, at the same time uh, asking Lori to try to draw some sprites. And I think she was using Secret of Mana as a reference at the time. And I, I think that I kind of flew off the, flew off the rails and, and lost motivation and stopped with that attempt. And this was, this was about just 10 years ago, um, in 2007 or so, uh, maybe, maybe 11 or 12 years ago now. And then... Once that fizzled, we tried to do RPG Maker XP, and Lori made an Atlantial sprite for that. Um, and I, I think I also lost motivation in that case. But when, once we started getting into the NES, and I decided to start Anomalous, things just started to move more more smoothly. It's hard hard to describe. Like it kind of let it's kind of led us along, so to speak. Um, and and I'd say uh, it wasn't always easy to 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 acquire uh, Lori's help. I had to persuade her at the beginning, and you know it, there were other things she wanted to do with her own time and so on. So you know, it took a <laughs> while for us to work on to get a uh, a rhythm going. But I'd say after after this many years doing it, it's become something that she really enjoys doing. I think. Good. That, I mean, that's awesome. Yeah, if you can share that type of thing, that's just amazing. Yep. I can't imagine anyone wanting to do anything else. Like, how can she even want any other hobbies? <laughs> <laughs> Amazingly, I, I, and this surprised me too. Amazingly, she's her own person. <laughs> uh, the music in Alia, which you composed, uh, is really great. Can you briefly like touch on your musical upbringing? Uh, sure. So um, I, uh, I grew up in a pretty musical household. Uh, both of my sisters uh, learned piano uh, and were 10 years older than me, so I heard them practicing a lot of classical piano from an early age. And my dad plays boogie-woogie piano, and he's, so he improvises boogie, and I've, I've been hearing him belt out boogie-woogie since I was, you know, a fetus, basically. Um, so there's, there's that, and took a couple of piano lessons as a kid and a teenager, but I hated those. Then I then I had this awesome guitar teacher at age seventeen who completely turned things around for me by by telling me I was allowed to just mess around on the scale pattern that he taught me, and I did I, I found that so much more interesting than having to play the exact notes on a page, and that kind of uh, flipped a switch in my brain and I I started playing keyboards again at that time using some of the scale patterns for my guitar lessons actually and started picking out some tunes from video games that I really liked. Nice. And then that kind of turned into um, improvising on the keyboard. And eventually I met a friend in, I met someone on a, on a piano forum named Ted, uh, with whom I'm still friends today, who encouraged me to do more piano improvisation. And he actually sent me some audio cassettes of his own piano improvisation playing and it really inspired me. 
And, uh, and between that and taking further piano lessons in college, it sort of gave me a pretty solid ground kind of understanding of music. And um, eventually I was able to apply that to Family Tracker alongside this uh, NES development hobby and, and was able to compose some songs for, uh, for Alia. So what does that actually look like when you go to sit down and compose a song for the ice world? Like, walk us through that. Uh, so uh, that's, yeah, that's an interesting question. I'd say that I have, my approach to writing a piece of music is like, I don't, I don't really get anything in my head necessarily, but I will sit down with a blank family tracker file open and I'll have my, my little Korg nano key next to me. Clavichord? And... You got a Korg? Oh, you know, it's a Korg nano key. It's uh, a tiny little MIDI key. I want a Korg. It's, it's like, like a synthesizer, right? Yeah, but it's it's not even really a synthesizer. Like it's basically a it's basically a, a foot long piece of plastic with buttons on it that are arranged in the shape of a keyboard. Um, <laughs> but it's a but, Korg, so it's like four hundred or five hundred bucks. No, no, no. It's like fifty dollars. It's t- it's a oh, okay. tiny <laughs> tiny little USB thing. But but because it has the buttons laid out in the shape of the keyboard, it it helps me think about music like I would if I was improvising at the piano. Nice. So I have hmm. that plugged in the Family Tracker, which has MIDI support, and. I'll just kind of start with something. Usually I'll start with like a chord progression or a bass line and, and that, that won't necessarily be consciously chosen. I'll just kind of start with the first chord and then I'll just try another one based on the variety of chord changes that I'm familiar with through improvisation. And um, I'll just experiment in that fashion. And once I have uh, something like that, that I like, then I'll start adding a melody over it. And it, it's amusing how frequently I can put in some phrase in a quasi random fashion in family tracker. And it comes out sounding fairly decent without too many more changes. Huh? What a show off. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's more like, I, I think that, that in, in my experience with improvisation, I've learned I, not to judge what I'm creating too harshly, uh, and and so things tend to tend to to flow more easily. So when you started composing the music for Alia, did you did you want to sort of make it to where like multiple motifs played across like different levels music? Like, did you want to make like an overarching theme, or or does each song sort of stand on its own? I, I think I originally I wanted to make a new song for every single level, and I think I wound up reusing the mountain theme in the island area, which I'm I'm kind of sad about. I would have liked to have had a a unique song for each one, but I think um, I was still fairly new to to composing and and theme tracker, so it was a little harder for me to to make a, a really full soundtrack for the game. Hey, any game with a pirate shanty in it. It's a winner in my book, <laughs> which is a disproportionate number of homebrews have that in them. So <laughs> you're in good company, <laughs> you know, looking back and stuff, because uh, this took you, what, three, three and a half years to, to finish Alia, right? Yeah. Are, are you happy with how it turned out? Do you feel like, you know, your skills improved uh, versus what, what was in Nomalos and, and whatnot? Like, how do you yeah. feel about it? I, I think I am happy about how it turned out. Like I'm, I'm keenly aware of a lot of the flaws that it has, and I'm keenly aware of some of my original uh, goals of scope for the game. And contrasting those with how it turned out, that can tempt me to feel like I didn't quite hit what I wanted to. But just evaluating Alia for what it is and playing it, I, I realized that 
you know, it did turn out to be pretty fun and people like it and, and that makes me happy. So, I mean, I'm, I'm happy with it. Is there anything you, you would have done differently? Uh, did you find yourself sort of backed into any design corners in the process of making the game? Yeah, I definitely was. I, I definitely think if I were going to make an, uh, another Zelda-like in the future, I almost certainly would not have eight-way scrolling anywhere in the game. I would have made <laughs> oh. it single screen. Um, and the reason is that getting that eight-way scrolling engine to work was extremely time-consuming. And then after that, because I was sort of infected by the earworm of NES dev of removing all glitches whatsoever, I uh, I... I, ha- I worked on a constant timed V-blank routine to keep a 16-pixel wide bar at the top to hide all scrolling glitches. And that particular approach was probably one of the most insanely difficult approaches you could choose to remove all glitches. And I, I, can't, I, I don't know how many weekends I must have sunk into tweaking and retweaking that bar and making it work in a variety of different situations. It's, it's a real shame that I spent that much time on, on something technical when I could have been pouring all of that time into gameplay. So that's, that's probably my biggest regret of the project. If I had made it, if I, if I had made that entire project single screen, I could have, I, you know, I, I think I could have put some more interesting uh, gameplay. Maybe I could have made the game totally open like Zelda, for instance. Well, that sort of answers my next question. I was going to ask like, was there ever a plan to connect the overworld areas? Um, or is that something that you like toned down because of memory or time constraints? Yeah, that's definitely something I, I wanted. To, I wanted to make it open at one point, but then I decided I, I, I could feel the scope getting, getting away from me in the future. Like I could, I could kind of see that if I, if I tried to make the game open and have the way scrolling and everything else I wanted that I would absolutely never finish the project. So I, I backpedaled heavily and decided to sort of make this hybrid where I'd have single screen scrolling in the in the dungeons so that certain aspects were a lot easier to pull off, like how to manage enemies and so on, but still keep the eight-way scrolling because I spent so much time on it for the overworld. Uh, and, you know, it still, it still felt fun uh, to run around in the overworld and fight and find gold and stuff, but... Uh, I think that uh, part of the challenge with making an NES game is that since things can be extremely time-consuming and can can take so long, that one one is it's very, it was very difficult for me anyway to let go of something. Like I, I it, with Aulia, I, I I didn't have the confidence yet to decide what I really wanted out of the game design. It was more like I I made something and then I was going to keep what I made and run with it and see what kind of game I can make out of what I spent so much time in, Mm. spent so much time working on rather than deciding, no, this isn't what I really wanted. I'm going to throw it out and I'm going to start over. So that that, that had a big impact on the design of the game, I think. Interesting. Um, Well, you can just take all those ideas for the sequel. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So you're you're kind of interesting in the homebrew scene because you really only have three projects. Uh, most of us, you know, we've we've had failed games that never got done or weekend ideas that we explored and we're like, yeah, this is garbage. Uh, but you you really only have three. You've got Nomalos, Aulia, and now Trophy, which is is your third game. It's been enjoyable to kind of watch your skills evolve over time you know from nomalos to alia was a big leap and i think even more so the leap from alia to trophy is just huge so what can we kind of what can players expect to see with trophy 
Well, so Trophy, uh, Trophy is a, uh, a platformer um, based very heavily on Mega Man, and it's going to have it has both horizontal and vertical scrolling levels. It's it's not eight way scrolling; it just has levels that are either horizontal or vertical, just like just like Mega Man, basically. Although, nice. uh, to be honest, I don't think Mega Man games ever actually scrolled vertically. They w- they would scroll between screens vertically, but they wouldn't have any smooth scrolling vertical sections. So in that sense, Trophy's probably more like the Metroid engine, although it's not a free open world like Metroid, but it does have smooth vertical scrolling and smooth horizontal scrolling. Um, so there's that, and and all of the bosses of Trophy are 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 kind of like the final bosses of Mega Man. They're all enormous uh, and take advantage of uh, MMC3 scanline counters to do the um, to make the bosses scroll around against a static uh, floor. So there's those te- technical features that are beyond stuff I've done before. Nice. I mean, it's super impressive. Those bosses, I think, are the largest bosses out of any NES game, period, that I've seen. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. I mean, there's definitely some really big ones scrolling bosses on at the end of uh, several Mega Man games, for sure. Oh, yeah, but there's always like th- three, maybe four, whereas like every single boss in your game is just giant. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I, th- I thought it would be fun. Like, I actually, when I made Nomalous, I kind of wanted to make all the bosses huge for that game. Um, but I think just due to our, our experience level at the time, we wound up uh, backpedaling a little bit and were only able to manage making the dragon and the final boss, Boulder, uh, huge. Um, and then the uh, Grubsalem Bodge was sort of big because it had that mountain background, but the boss was really just that face flying around. So we really only had two big bosses in Nomalous, but this time we have nine. <laughs> if I ever get that far in Nomalous, I will confirm or deny that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I partly wanted to... Um, I think I partly was inspired to to somewhat outdo Battle Kid in a way in this respect because I think it had eight uh, large maybe they weren't all large I can't remember but they had eight or nine bosses in 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 Battle Kid one or two and I I thought I wanted to at least match that with this third game. <laughs> I don't think they were all big in in Battle Kid because there was that um, that color mage. Yeah, I, I'm remembering that now. There were a couple of sprite-based ones, um, yeah. but there certainly were some large and impressive-looking ones. And yeah, I wanted to wanted to do that. I enjoy that you see what other people are doing and inspires you to do great things, uh, to do better things. That's yeah. awesome. Well, not necessarily better, but you know, better. better. The, the the challenge is there. It's it's a living challenge to to exceed your <laughs> peers. That's that's awesome. Yeah, Anomalous, um, right around when I was working on Anomalous, uh, that was right around the time that uh, Julius of Morph Cat Games was making Super Bat Puncher. Um, I've, I've heard I of remember this. Be, I remember being like just completely mind-blown by Super Bat Puncher, and uh, and I was just I was thinking to myself back then, I was like, oh, I'm never going to make a game that good. Oh my god, this is amazing. I, I think one of the things that I thought was so cool about Super Bat Puncher was that the screen shook when you hit something. And so mm. that, that's so cool. And so I, I, uh, I have to put this anomalous. So I put screen shaking anomalous because of super bad puncher. <laughs> so backing up to um, Alia one more time. Um, is there, do you have a favorite piece of music from the game that you'd like us to feature from Elia? Yeah. Um, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm partial to the, the mountain theme, uh, which is sort of, sort of intended to be the main hero theme of the game. Interesting choice, interesting choice. Well, we will give that a listen right after these three questions. 
What's your favorite homebrew of all time? Uh, my favorite homebrew of all time. I think I think I'm gonna have to say Mad Wizard. Ooh. Hashtag agree. <laughs> and your favorite home brewer of all time? Sly Dog Studios. <laughs> Man, Rob is paying some people off is what he's doing. <laughs> that man's got talent. Plus he loves Rocky. I mean, what could be better? <laughs> Nothing. Um, do you have a favorite Baroque composer of all time? A favorite Baroque composer? Oh, favorite Baroque. I thought you said broke. <laughs> they're all broke they're, prob- they're, they're probably broke too <laughs> um favorite baroque composer um i guess i'd probably have to say scarlatti um yeah scarlatti's my favorite i just love how his music has so many there's so many really really catchy like riffs in his music like the, mm-hmm. I, I have a, a box set of all of his harpsichord sonatas and so many of them have this wonderfully catchy dance type of tune and it really does sound like a riff because they'll play this this little melody and it will repeat like three or four times before there's any changes just like it would be like a riff in a rock song almost and i just find it really uh really listenable um where it sometimes bach gets a little bit too dense and intellectual to really enjoy i, I like things yeah. that are catchy and kind of make me want to bang my head <laughs> like like uh, metal or something which for those that don't know the music in nomalos was uh, baroque inspired correct yeah, well, actually, uh, most of the Nomalous soundtrack actually is by Domenico Scarlatti. Oh. Um, there's a few, there's a couple of pieces by Bach and a piece by I don't even know how to pronounce his name, Pancrase Royer or something. I can know That's how I'd it. say it. <laughs> and then also uh, Rameau, one piece by Rameau, which is also a really cool composer, but most of it's Scarlatti. And and the, there's one song I wrote, which is the boss music. <laughs> I can see Paul Giamatti right now going, you call this Rameau? And, uh, <laughs> anyway, sorry. Kevin. I was going uh, to tell our listeners to go do homework and look them up, but they don't have to. They just need to go play uh, Anomalous. Yeah, which is available as a free ROM release, just like Alia. Uh, so Gradualgames.com. Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, thanks for coming on, Derek. And here is the mountain theme from The Legends of Alia.
Well, that was fascinating, as can be, as always. And I, I always enjoy his music. Uh, yes, always really, really good. It's just very well done. Uh, but what's been happening with you, Kevin? Bo, so much has been going on with me, and it's exciting you always things. always say that. Well, it's finally actually something tangible and exciting to everyone listening because it's NES related. So sneak and peek um, too. Sneak and peek two. The yes! no, definitely not sneak and peek two. Oh. God, why does sneak and peek one even exist? I have started um, an escape room type game with a local friend of mine named Kendall Howard. Um, she did a lot of the writing of coming up with a story, and she and I. Uh, and her sister Ooh. Chelsea, we all got together and sort of came up with some puzzles and we fleshed out this idea, but an idea is only as good as what a graphic artist can present graphically. So um, I sort of put some feelers out um, to try to lure in some untapped talent, um, which never seems to happen because, you know, in the past I've gone out and like gone after people who are known <laughs> um, and who are reliable and I've paid them money to actually actually you know give me graphics um which has you know have questionable results but um this time i stumbled across this guy um named john he has this youtube channel called peekabrews which some of you may or may not have heard of and if you haven't definitely check them out but he did not even realize he had this talent for yes. creating nes art he sent me like sort of a a message that was half serious, half joking, like, oh, hey, I can I can make you some art in MS Paint. And I was like, oh, can you? Well, let's see what you got. <laughs> yeah, and actually you inspired him with your talk of Paint MS Paint for podcast. So that made him think that he, he too could possess this talent. Oh, that um, warms so my I, heart. Yeah, I sent him some uh, some programs, some NES-specific uh, programs like NES Screen Tool, Tile Layer Pro. Um, tried to sort of give him some guidelines for what it takes to, you know, some of the rules for making art for the NES. And my god, this guy has churned out some of the most impressive stuff I've ever seen. So he is as motivated as I've seen in a human being. So um, this game is going to happen and I'm very excited. Um, so I've brought him on. Um, I took to Twitter also to try to find a, a musician to make some music for us. Got some amazing uh, submissions from different people. But uh, the old guy who new, ended up right? getting the job. Yeah, old and new. Some people that were making chiptune music back in the 90s. Um, just sort of all all across the board. Um, got some really good uh really good submissions but um this guy named trojan horse uh sent me some stuff he actually put together some ideas specific for this game we're working on and uh i sort of let everyone in the in the dev team uh, have a vote um of who they wanted to pick and unanimously we all went with trojan horse uh for different reasons but um sneaking into a uh, living room near you right yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> watch Is out that a condom joke no, it's an ancient Greek joke. Uh, oh, Troy, can, we, can man. we make it a condom joke? Yeah, we can always make it a condom joke. All right. Um, but what's really fascinating to me is I have these three people now who are completely new to the scene, and there's something inherently exciting about that. So we're uh, we're all fresh and uh, excited. Except and you. I think everyone's e no, even me, man. Well, I'm not. Are you saying I'm not new or not excited? Not fresh. Oh, yeah, I'm definitely not yeah. fresh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, but I'm really excited. Um, this project is moving very quickly. 
Um, and some of the puzzles we have come up for uh, in this game are so damn clever. I can't wait for everyone to give it a try. And as if the game itself is not awesome enough, um, I've programmed in uh, Super Nintendo mouse support. So you can Ooh! play this game with the mouse, my friend. Seems like you would need an adapter for that. Uh, you would. If only I knew someone who made them. If only we both did. Hmm. Well, maybe uh, someone we know will contact me yes. uh, and help us out. Perhaps. And if you happen to already own the Spookatron adapter for the Super Nintendo, it will work with the mouse. Absolutely. Um, so we're going to have a demo available at MAGFest. So mm. if you are showing up to MAGFest, uh, we hope to have at least the first chapter of the game uh, fully playable. Well, so, that's uh, news to me. Yeah. Hey, you know, I can't tell you everything, Bo. I know. That, that's awesome, though. You've posted pictures on Twitter of what the game looks like, right? Uh, I've posted pictures on Twitter, but what's really exciting to me as the pictures I'm posting are not in the game. They're all red herrings. Oh. But it's just going to give you a taste graphically of what you might see. You sneaky devil. I guess I've been privy to some uh, animated GIFs that gifts. <laughs> yes those stay uh, between us oh okay I, I'll, I'll quit posting those delete um, <laughs> that's one that's been one of the you know we were talking earlier about things that have changed in the community like the community started off with asking for submissions from random new people and you know dave shows up and does the art for battle kit and that was just like whoa dude this is amazing and then all of a sudden like we shifted to kind of like developers were paying for quality assets and now suddenly we're back to random solicitations i hope maybe well i mean i've, I've found that people that are motivated for the, the sake of creation seem to be more motivated than and it's strange because you'd think that people are that are being paid for their work would would be a little more i don't want to say reliable because that that sounds i guess that has negative connotations to it it, does. it seems like i'm getting much faster returns from people that are in it because they're excited to be part of the project. So if I said, I need RPG art, please send any submissions to assemblyline at gmail.com. That would be uh, something that I might have some success with. It might, but you might want to use the correct email address, which is nesassemblyline oh. at gmail.com. Huh. Well, that's interesting. Only then will you actually get the submissions. Whose email have I been checking all these months? Huh. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. That's what I've been up to. What have you been up to, Bo? Um, unlike you, I actually made my way out to Portland this year. Now, we can't oh. all be, you know, living lifestyles of the rich and famous on cruise ships in the middle of hurricanes. Uh, well, you know, uh, I got to get my kicks where I can get them. I think you got a massive discount from the hurricane cruise is what I think. Uh, hey, I went ziplining in Belize. It was awesome. I don't even. Is that like Discovery Land? Is, is that like it's a chain government. place, Belize? No, Belize, it's a country in Central America. Get out of here. <laughs> uh, so I went to Portland, which is not Belize and not very exciting. You what? better Belize it. Oh, okay. You've been waiting a while for that. Um, it was unbelievable. Okay. We're going to have to cut I'm you done. off. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I made my way out to Portland, as I tend to do every year, because I kind of wrap a family trip into it and, you know, visit nephews and a family vacation uh, oh wow no we'll talk about that some other day um well played though 
So yeah, uh, <laughs> Portland. We had the usual crew, Sans, Kevin, and Tim. Uh, you know, Brian from Retro USB, he was out there, and Sergio, and Tim and Greg from Retrotainment, and various other people. Frank. Golly, I always forget Frank. Frank was there. And who else? Oh, Jason from uh, Retro USB Support, things like that. So, you know, we had the, our usual crew, but we also had, you know, Chris Cacciatore came out, which was wonderful to meet him in person. Uh, you know, he did Nebs and Debs and did the art for Spookatron. He's done some art for an undisclosed project that I will may or may not be revealing at some point in the future. <laughs> and it rhymes with RPG. Um we, you know, it was, it was just nice. It was nice to meet him to talk with him finally in person, even though he escaped somehow and I didn't get to take him out for drinks. But, uh, uh, Chris Optimon. Yeah. Uh, Chris has been doing, uh, he did Pyronaut with MT a while back, uh, which never got released, but it's very far along, which we talked about earlier, maybe unless that was edited out. And he has been working on a game called Raleigh, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing. It's probably Roly because you roll. Uh, places so that was neat to see this is like the second year he's had that there it's good to talk to him inl uh the famous majestic infinite nes lives paul uh was there i got to tell had him you met him before no i've never met him in person you know we talked oh, to man. him we've talked to him on here so paul was there with his wife uh, lauren and they they were just wonderful like uh somehow they had their parents or in-laws uh, take care of the kids and they got to escape to portland and like meeting him in person was a real treat and pretty much to everybody uh who i met uh, in portland i was very tired the, the whole trip so I, I was not myself i i'm sorry but yeah it was great to great to sort of see everybody uh, we had some fans, which always weirds me out that people know what we do. Sean showed up, a fellow who I'd been conversing with uh, through Kickstarter and online. He was like, hey, and I was like, oh, my goodness, that's you. And so we talked for a good long while. Like, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, though I know I have. We are very approachable people. Uh, come find us oh, at yeah. shows. We will talk your ear off and we'd love to hear what you have to say about whatever. So PSC, he's done uh, sort of a Mario Kart-ish thing for the NES and Billionaire Banshee and some other stuff. He showed up, showed showed me some of his progress on things. A guy named Kyle was like, hey, you owe me some Virtual Boy controller instructions. He's like, <laughs> oh, crap. That's another thing you can get at the shows. When you tell me that I owe you something, I can usually tell you um, that I'll get it to you very, very soon. Um, so that's always interesting. But yeah, it was just nice to... Uh, it was nice to see some people, to meet some people, and I hardly even realized the show was going on, but uh, it was a good time. Was the kid there? Dude, he became a moody teenager. What the crap? Ah, he was such bright-eyed with such like optimism and, and such a future in, in NES dev ahead of him, and, and now he's tell, moody? Tell the listeners who the kid is. All right, so we're at this booth, right? We're at our booth. We're just, you know, Two talking years to ago. people and, and hawking our wares and, you know, doing doing the grind, the expo grind, as, as we like to say. <laughs> we say that? Um, yeah, we don't. But there, this kid approaches us, and he, he has this enthusiasm that I just, I guess, you know, when you're that age, you're just filled with it. But like... I just haven't come into contact with anyone with that kind of enthusiasm in in quite some time. This is and a twelve year old, by the way. Yeah, he's tw- he, he might be twelve. He's so young, but what he's enthusiastic about is NES development. Like a kid at this age knows, like he's getting into assembly language. Like I was so excited. He hung out for like 
probably an hour. Like he was there with, with his, his parents, parents and they'd like, yeah, he's there with his parents. Like, you know, he talks to us for a while. He shuffles around sort of the expo center. He comes back later. He like talks to us some more. Like we were so hyped for this kid the next year. He shows up again. Like he comes and talks to us. We talk about NES dev. Like he listens to the podcast. It was just so cool. So like, I didn't get to make it this year. So I was so excited to like hear about the kid. And Bo says he turns into a moody well, teenager. I didn't even see him. Somebody else spot him. They're like, that's the kid. And he's avoiding us. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> like what happened? And I was like, oh, that age. Maybe he found out about girls. Oh, definitely. Uh, he was not with his parents. He was with a friend. <laughs> like, what are we going to do? I, we need this kid back. This kid is the future. Um, and we've all been there. We all went through that phase. Yeah. yeah I just think it's hilarious. <laughs> we'll the get kid. him back. Hopefully the kid comes around. Yeah. We'll, we'll st- oh, he'll come around. Kid, if you're still listening to the podcast, he is. we'll be here when you're ready, buddy. We'll always be here. Right now, we're the nerdy people who you don't want to associate with, but one of these days, you'll find out that we're still nerdy. You just want to be one of us. And you might find the girl who's into the nerdy stuff that you're into. Or you convince her you're not into those things, you marry her, and then about two years in, you pull out all this nerdy stuff, and you're like, you're stuck with me, woman. Is that the bait and switch? Oh, did I bait and switch her? Is that what that's called? <laughs> huh. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so Portland was overall a good experience? Oh, it was, yeah. I mean, it's always amazing. I always love seeing everybody. I stayed in a room with a bunch of night owls. So like I said, I got like two to three hours of sleep a night, which was just brutal. I'm going <laughs> to strangle Tim. Golly. These guys don't sleep at night. What's their problem? I don't know, man. Uh, I need my sleep. If I don't get my seven or eight hours, uh, you don't want to meet that, Kevin. Well, that's why I like uh, rooming with you and Jason and Tim from Orab Games, not Tim from Retrotainment. <laughs> you all go to bed at a decent hour. We are like, old and we like our sleep. 2 a.m. hits and uh, Tim from Retrotainment and Greg, they're like, party's starting. I'm like, nope, it's not. <laughs> uh, and I'm just like in the corner asleep and I think they were drawing on my face. I'm not really certain, but uh, Were there yeah. pictures and arrows towards your mouth? Oh, generally. Oh, okay. um, oh, the, the one night I, I woke up at, you know, 5 a.m. like I tend to. And I'm like, man, this is a lumpy bed. And at some point I realized Sergio's sleeping in the bed next to him. Like, huh, I'm glad I didn't like roll across and snuggle up throughout the night. Uh, well, I mean, you might have been a little surprised. A life goal is to sleep with Sergio. So I, I applaud you for making that happen, sir. Oh, achievement crossed off. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, he was in a different bed the other night. Why did he show up in my bed the second night? Uh, he's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, one of the other exciting parts about uh, PRGE was that a game, or not a game, a program that I worked on that was released on cartridge, so some might call it a game, uh, was released, like it debuted. I did Tim from Retrotainment. I hate that we have to differentiate, but there's just like five names in the community. So it's always Brian from wherever, Kevin from wherever, Tim from wherever. Uh, when I was staying at his house and we did the Mega Man thing, the re-release, the Legacy cartridge, we worked on this project for the Classic Tetris World Championships, aka the CTWC, mm. which was an archive card. It had history, it had past results, uh, whatnot. It also had a screen where like blocks fell. And as they cleared the lines, they showed people's names, ranks, whatever. And we worked on that together and that was really released in portland which was kind of cool to see like usually my releases are very anticlimactic because i do them myself and i'm always behind and blah 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 blah. but with this one like 
we handed it off and they released it there. And, you know, Vince, Uncle Tusk had boxes and it was there for sale. Like, I, I don't think people realized it was the previous year. They just had a cartridge with a label. There was no circuit board in it. And this year there was actually like a program to run to kind of commemorate the competition, which was uh, fun because there was a new winner this year, too. Uh, some 16-year-old ousted Jonas, who has held the championship title for the last like seven years. So that was awesome to see. Well, it was very crazy to me because when you went off to the land of Pennsylvania um, to help entertainment guys with with their Mega Man release, I had no idea that you were working on this Tetris cartridge. So when you came back and you sent me the ROM, you were like, hey, check out this thing that I worked on. You know, you've sent me little demos and things for so long of like your works in progress or, you know, little parts of your RPG stuff, just little tech demos that were showcasing different things. You sent me this Tetris thing and it blew me away. Like I couldn't believe how polished it was. Thank all you. Around. So can people like check out that ROM online at all? Or is it just like you had to buy a cartridge to kind of see this? Uh, you had to buy a cartridge and I don't think any information has circulated that it even exists because mm. it's not a game like it didn't hit yeah uh the usual game buyers so it, it i don't even know what's happening with the extra copies like i assume they'll be sold at some point but it was it was a neat project primarily because it was a chance for tim and i to work together and like i don't normally work with other people in that capacity like i contract out art or music i don't go head to head 50 50 we're gonna make decisions he designed most of the screens i just implemented them it was so nice to not have to do every last thing myself oh you guys did a heck of a job i mean the some of the programming tricks that you had to to do i i was very impressed i don't even think i could do some of that stuff so um, oh he had vision man my hat's off to the both of you for sure so what's been happening in the community lately oh a lot's been going on um a as our canadian friends would say well i mean if you want to sort of compound from the last podcast episode um where i sort of put out a call for people making levels for the incident too oh yeah i have one i released a standalone level creator free free online yes a free rom for online so if anyone uh did not find that i released it on twitter and actually you can go to well i don't remember the direct url it's on my website but if you go to twitter (laughs) you can scroll down my feed um you can find the the direct link and download it uh make levels send them in to me and i have gotten probably 20 or so levels 20 levels does not make a game so it's definitely not something that i can release yet but when when's all said and done if if i don't have enough to make and release a full game with you know i'll I'll put the levels together and sort of release it to the community so definitely if you have any interest continue to put those together and send them my way because uh some of the levels i've gotten in are pretty dang cool yeah yeah i'm excited to see i wish i could come up with levels for your game but i don't have a creative Sokoban uh, bone in my body. <laughs> but uh, other than that, I think Brian's done coding the 2018 Christmas cartridge that our Patreon S- supporters have been able to download. So what does that mean for those of us like myself that do not do this thing we call social media? Uh, well, we have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash line, and on it, we've sort of been posting a progression of Brian's 
development stages of this uh, 2018 skiing game. And uh, we posted what he thinks is the final ROM uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, so you can go there straight to our, that's right there on our main Patreon page. And if you are a donator, you can download that free of charge. Man, this is a wild world. Yeah. Uh, it's cool, man. It's the first time we've done anything like this. And I don't know of anyone else that's done anything like this. So it's been cool to be a part of. And uh, the game is actually probably the most fun. It's the most fun I've had on one of his Christmas games. Maybe, I mean, it's up there with the pinball game. I, I have a lot of fun playing the ski game. Uh, I I feel kind of bad admitting this, but I had no clue any of this was happening. Oh, really? Yeah, he mentioned it in Portland. He was like, you know, those those dev ROMs, and I was like, the what? <laughs> and so you're you kind of to explain you're it to half me. of this podcast, and you didn't even know it was happening. Yeah, that's hilarious. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, yeah, so Brian's apparently done this really cool thing where he gives patron supporters the ROM, and I'm just sitting here going, what? <laughs> Yeah, so it's uh, okay. it's sort of a port-ish, it's like a reimagining of the old uh, MS-DOS Windows game, uh, Ski Free, um, and because... Minesweeper? No, Minesweeper has been... Solitaire? <laughs> Ski Free, Bo, Ski Free. Ski Free, okay. Yeah, so um, I snuck in some snowboarders, so if you want to replace skiers with some snowboarders, uh, you can press, I think it's select on the title screen, and it will swap out all the graphics into snowboarders, which is way more badass. I mean, let's be honest. You kids, you 90s kids. (laughs) Um, But what else has been going on? I'm still stunned that uh, people can get access to Xmas 18 early, but... um... Including myself, I, I've been downloading all of his ROMs that, that he posts, you know, privately, but uh, haven't actually opened one. You so need to check it out, Bo. It's a lot of fun. Maybe, maybe the next episode we will just feature Xmas 2018. Ooh, How about that? there's an idea. Let's do that. Yeah, we'll see if it flies. <laughs> um, what else has been going on? How about Super Homebrew War? Ooh, yeah. Let's talk about Super Homebrew War. Uh, that's by uh, Nathan Talbert, right? Tall Bear. No, Talbert. it's not that. No, it's Talbert. Talbert. Yeah. Um, so he has made the wonderfully self-referential fighting game that uh, kind of incorporates all of the community's characters and weapons into a two-player head-on-head fighting game. Yeah, it's kind of like Super Smash Brothers-esque, but he takes like levels from different homebrew games and characters yeah. from different homebrew games and puts them in this one-on-one fighting situation. It's so cool. This is his entry for the 2019 Nestev competition. And do you have any of your stuff in there, by the by chance? You know it. The uh, like what? player one from Study Hall uh, is in the game, along with a very nice uh, Study Hall-esque uh, level. Really cool. Yeah, and uh, he took the Spaceman from Spookatron, which was drawn by Chris Cacciatore, of course. And that's in there. And I, I, because it was an 8x8 sprite, he blew it up to be huge. It's like 16x16, 16 16, but still the same like proportions, pixels yeah. and everything. So it's it's fun and blocky. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's been it's really neat to like see... Uh, somebody take everything that we've done and kind of cameo it into a game and call it good yeah it's sort of like a greatest hits collection of uh homebrew characters it's so cool like seeing them all in the same game well he also let his kids draw characters and 
he's got like four kids and they're varying ages, but like the three or four year old drew this. It looks like a piece of toast with arms and legs. <laughs> and that is definitely a character you can play as and destroy other characters with. Nice. They're his testers. He's got to honor them. Absolutely. I mean, he put in a lot of effort making those testers. So, I mean, you may as well get some work out of them. <laughs> making those <laughs> testers. Yeah. I don't need people. I can make my own people. <laughs> Did you see that uh, that company limited li- is it limited run games released an NES game Galf, which is a you mean golf? No, it's Galf. You mean like golf with Alf? It is golf with Alf. No, it's Galf. It's a mini game from a Switch game called Golf Story, which is a super fun game. Who would who knew that combining golf with an RPG would make such a fun experience. Um, Can I raise my hand very high right now? (laughs) I'm going to call that a G RPG, but yes, it's an S S P RPG sports RPG. (laughs) Okay. My apologies. Fool. Um, But man, like they took the, the golf, like they, they sort of took the NES golf and sort of reimagined it inside this switch game, but they thought it would be fun to, actually take that game out of the Switch game and give it a standalone release. Um, and that was programmed by... Thomas, not Tomas, but Thomas uh, Guinan, who did Eskimo Bob and the Alfonso game. Yeah, so this game was released on Limited Run Games uh, and sold out pretty much immediately. Don't get me started on that. Oh, I was right mm. there with you trying to score a copy, but uh, alas. We are oh, I'm, I'm pissed. Like... It literally, Galfless, yes. <laughs> Hashtag Galfless. Uh, that stupid thing sold out within three seconds, maybe? One second? Yeah, and then uh, they found, I guess, they 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 canceled some duplicate orders by some people and, and put up a second batch that also sold out immediately. So there was just... Oh, I think Limited Run generally does a second batch. Like, they, they stagger their uh, orders throughout the day, mm-hmm. like the first day, uh, at least into two. But yeah, both times I I had one in the cart at one point, but I was like, oh, I don't understand how limited run games works. It says this one's out of stock. So I refreshed the page and it was like, now you have nothing in your cart. And I was like, you piece of crap. (laughs) Oh, I was pissed. Uh, That's a bummer. But uh, it's cool that an NES homebrew did so well on a traditional like indie game market. Yeah, 2,000 copies within uh, a second. Yeah, that's pretty darn good. Yeah, nothing to sneeze at. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I still want a copy. Yeah. If you really want, if you want your name mentioned on this podcast, please send a copy to uh, (laughs) nesassemblyline at gmail.com. Two copies, please. Oh, oh, okay. No, just send one to me. (sighs) Hey, Kevin has no say. (laughs) Yeah, but it'll be exciting to see what that's about. And just kind of... The whole thing of like this tiny little subcategory of indie gaming that we do called homebrew that has now been kind of worked into some sort of mainstream big company release stuff. It's 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 weird. I mean, it just goes to show that um, marketing plays a huge part in things, you know. And if you'd like to be a marketing for Soul Goose Productions, <laughs> go to nesassemblyline at gmail <laughs> you're taking submissions there also huh <laughs> yes I, I will take any and all submissions uh, all right well let's talk about uh shmup speed for a second is sh- you mean shrimp no well it depends on who you're asking but shmup speed oh, snap. 
So Douglas Glover, who goes by Gloves online. He, or Gloves Off Gaming. Yes, there you go. Every year he takes part in this uh, uh, charity event for a charity called Extra Life. And he tries to raise money. Do, do you know offhand uh, anything about Extra Life? Yeah, it's uh, he raises money for the Children's Hospital, the Sick Kids Hospital mm. in Toronto, which when I lived in Toronto, I remember walking by all the time and going, that's a hospital for kids in need. That's kind of cool. And then I would, you know, go about my day. But it, it's this giant structure, and he spent time there as a child. I think he said his his legs went out, mm-hmm. and he could no longer walk. And he went to this hospital, and over months they fixed him. Whatever I forget exactly what disease he had. Wow. Um, yeah, it, it played a huge role in his personal life, and so he has raised money for this charity ever since, or not ever since, but since you know he became an adult and uh each year he tries to do something but this year he decided to do this cart release which kevin programmed this uh thing called shmup speed which is what uh so basically shmup speed is a it's a game but it basically is a tool that shows you how many button presses you are pressing per uh second so it's basically a shooter Galaga type shooting game, but you don't have, there are no enemies. You're just basically firing bullets as fast as you can to uh, get your uh, button presses per second. Which seems super lame, but he explained it to me a little bit. Like there's, there's some history here. Hudson, who made a lot of shooting games, they, until sometime in the 2000s, released these things called Hudson Shooting Watches. And it was this little device that you just pressed buttons on and it told you how many times you pressed the button. Like these are actual devices you can find on eBay. Huh. And they're pretty cool. And so this project was kind of an NES version of that, which I think is neat. Like it has, Full new appreciation, in my view, because of that. Yeah, so... Uh, Did you know that when you made it? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Um, he, <laughs> he came to me uh, with the idea of potentially programming it for him, and he had it all in... He, like, he had it envisioned in his head very, very strongly. You know, he had... The, That's the, all we need. He had the designs mapped out. He had sort of the animations of how he wanted things to come on screen. Um, and that was a fun challenge for me because some of his ideas probably like when i think of like how i want to do things on the nes like if anything is untraditional i immediately think oh well i can't do that 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 would just be a little bit too hard to do on the nes but the way he sort of presented it to me you know this is how i want to do it i thought ah, i don't think i can do that and then i stopped to think okay maybe i can find a way of how to do that so it turned out to it, it looks super pretty like like the menu system and everything it just looks pretty. There's like an elegance to it. So I'm very happy that oh, he sort is. of, he pushed me to uh, push myself. And uh, the end product is very, very beautiful. It is very nice looking. I, I was very impressed when I fired it up and I was like, dang, Kevin, you're growing, son. <laughs> oh, you impressed me and I impressed you. This is oh, a nice it's a happy podcast. Day. Uh, and then you somehow threw my name into the mix for, hey, this guy will do boxes and carts and all that crap. <laughs> so this became sort of a group project where I did the some of the physical production. Aaron E., he printed the boxes for me, sent them to me. Actually, he cut them out for me, too, which was awesome. Then I just assembled that, the manuals and the labels. And then a fellow named SNES Cube 64 PS1 DSi XL. <laughs> something like He's got a bunch of consoles in his name, whatever that's about. <laughs> Matt. Matt, uh, he did the uh, PCBs because the guy is just sort of a wizard with 
doing circuitry and then he also ordered the car he sourced the parts the carts from china and whatnot all that got sent to me with kevin's rom i sort of put it all together and then shipped them out last friday and they should be arriving in people's hands tomorrow uh which will be after the fact by the time this goes to air but still yeah oh and how did they release it uh well he actually did an auction um on nintendo age uh for five copies a cash grab uh limited le auction i mean how do you say that something that is raising money for such a worthy charity is a cash grab i mean it's just it, it's ridiculous to even say that. I mean, this... I, I would only say that if the fool, just the foolish, foolish person he is, gave every last cent to charity and didn't keep a dime even to cover his own parts. But that wouldn't happen, would it? That happened. I mean, every oh my. every dollar that was raised for this um, went to charity. I got no money. You got no money. I mean, we we wanted to do this for him, and he wanted to do it for this charity. Um, this extra life charity so some very very high bids came in so he raised he raised his goal like he does a 24-hour uh, stream i believe um to raise money that's what he's done in the past uh this year he did this sort of cartridge release in addition to that he had a goal in mind of what he wanted to do uh total between the auction and his 24-hour stream and this auction alone uh raised more money than he anticipated for his whole goal so it did very well yeah, and it was great to see like people. I mean, they were getting something, uh, you know, in the end if they if they end up winning. But um, every last dollar they they gave went to sick kids, kids in need. Yeah. So that that was just awesome. You just don't see that kind of thing happening. So it was uh, it was. I've seen charity auctions in the community, and they're always pocketing some for parts, yeah. or they're doing whatnot. But like this guy was just 100% honest and he didn't even like the money didn't even pass through his hands. Uh, he really wanted bidders just to give it straight to the charity. And just the whole thing was, was amazing to see. Yeah. It was very special to be a part of. So I was, I was happy to help and I'm sure you were happy to help. Oh, I didn't realize I was helping with something like that. Uh, I just thought I was, you know, I was like, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm part of something. But uh, then it was like, Oh, this is kind of cool. Like, <laughs> I'm really proud to be a part of this now. Yeah. So hopefully we can come up with something for next year. I don't know what he has in mind or if he even wants to include us, but absolutely would love to be part of it. Oh, yeah. It's hard to not want to be a part of something like that. Uh, so as always, we appreciate everyone tuning in. If you want to find more information on me, I can be found on Twitter uh, at a ton of glaciers. And of course, Bo can be found on Twitter at soul goose. And if you need more information, just send a private message. I don't always answer public uh, tweet things. So, <laughs> sorry, continue. I just I don't I don't I'm a private person. Just send me a message. Do you have, your, you. Do you have your direct messages open for people that don't follow you or that you don't follow? That's a thing. Yes, it is. Uh, if if oh, you I don't follow people, then. they can't message you directly unless you change that oh. option. Oh, I'll just I'll just force people to keep following <laughs> me, I guess. And of course, if you have uh, any questions, concerns, comments, you can reach us at nesassemblyline at gmail.com. We will answer any questions on future episodes. We haven't gotten any in a while. Um, and I actually have an idea for a contest, so I'm just going to throw this contest out for anyone who's still listening to this episode. If you want to win some free games, uh, free games that I myself free? have made, yeah, I'll send you a copy of The Incident, I'll send you a copy of Scramble, whatever you want, you just Take tell me. No, let's not get crazy here, Bo. Okay, alright. Um, so, how do you win these free games? I'm going to tell you how. Uh, if you go to iTunes and leave a review of this podcast, tell the world how much you love it or don't love it, 
Uh, we'd prefer if you tell how much you love it, but you know, you do you. And after we'll take honesty. Yeah, after you leave that review, uh, if you also email us at nesassemblyline at gmail.com, uh, basically with a copy of the review, just so we can kind of see it directly, um, and we'll, of course, double check that you posted it publicly, I'm going to do a raffle. So I'm going to give away, let's just say, one of each of my games. So two lucky Six winners. Six copies of each game to the lucky winner. Six copies to one person? Well, yeah, you're paying 50 bucks a level for the incident too, right? <laughs> Bo, I'm going to have to find a new co-host. Yeah, so I'll give away one. Let's just start with uh, one copy of The Incident and one copy of Scramble. So two winners. uh, I'll give away this go-round, and maybe we'll do this again in the future. So leave some reviews and email us. Let us know you did it, and uh, we will announce the winners on the next episode, which may or may not be for 2018 Christmas cartridge. (laughs) I may have to submit a review because I'm missing a copy of Scramble, so we'll see. Well, you know. You'll you'll at least have one. (laughs) Well, we can't have that because you're not winning. Spoiler review. That's your goal. Um, And lastly, um, of course, uh, we're on Patreon, patreon.com slash line. You can donate uh, to help us pay for some of the costs for hosting uh, on SoundCloud and some other things. There are, you know, us putting this out is free to you, but it's not free to us. So uh, any cent that you can give uh, definitely goes toward helping us out here and it'll help us uh, put out future episodes. So uh, if you like what we're doing um, and want to donate some money, uh, definitely we uh, we encourage that. And who's doing our closing music today, Kevin? Oh, today we have a song from uh, Heosphoros. Is that how it's pronounced? I'd say Heosphoros. You can say it that way. Tomato, tomato. It's he has not sent tomato, us. Tomato. <laughs> he Con sent us games. a song called CX, uh, spelled C E Y X. He was nice enough to send us a song to close this episode out with. He is a very good chiptune artist from back in the day. He isn't old timer too he's been doing this since like late 90s early 2000s so yeah so it's nice to uh feature him so uh it's an honor and uh check it out we appreciate all you guys hanging out with us for so long thanks for tuning in